South of the border Down Mexico way Really? That's where I fell in love Really, goodness. When really? the stars above came out to play Tell me this isn't appropriate, I dare you I wonder Where I fell in love My thoughts ever stray Well, okay, maybe not that part Or any of it the <laughs> no? Some of the words, South of the border is very appropriate because, Hello! Pardon my co-host, he uh, jumped in a little too early, but my name is Tom Chick. We're going to give you a podcast for the Quarter 3 Movie Podcast for Sicario. The guy you heard talking to me was Christian Mulansky. You actually got Nick close before. Uh, It's just moron. (laughs) And with our... (laughs) Sicario tagline, Kelly Wand. Yeah, and fear and loathing, that waitress was uh, also popping her mouth off to Del Toro over some pie. Wow, good pull, Kelly Wand. Mm. Boom. Gotta go deep. Yeah, not much of a tagline, but a good reference. Do you have something that's maybe a little snappier for a tagline for Sicario? Uh, it's like eating Tex-Mex. Half of it's awesome, but it gets all over the place, and 45 minutes afterwards, you regret it. Ooh, well, that's an interesting take. I look forward to hearing more on that. Uh, is there a tertiary tagline for Sicario? Tertiary is. It's like Prisoners, except the water tortures off screen. Did you see Prisoners? Yeah, that part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I found out. Talk about that. Uh, Kelly Wan, before we talk Sicario, do you have an IMDb that <laughs> you could read us, and then Dingus and I will guess the movie? Yeah, I'm very excited about this one. Uh, by the way, Fred Bo sent in a really good one, but I try to keep them themed with what we're talking about mm-hmm. because that's really important to the listeners. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mexico, 1840s. <laughs> this isn't mine, by the way. I know it sounds like me. <laughs> Mexico, 1840s. When wealthy landowner Don Diego Vega sprains his ankle and cannot figure out how to continue his campaign against the corrupt Captain Esteban, luck stays with Three me. Three amigos? No. Okay, I predict Diggis, I thought Diggis was already going to get it. But luck stays with Vega. Luck wasn't staying with it before he sprained his ankle. But whatever. When his long-lost twin brother Ramon, who was sent off by their father to the British Royal Navy to make a man of him, whom is also flamboyantly gay... Oh and now Lieutenant Bunny Wigglesworth appears for a visit. Bunny agrees. Bunny Wigglesworth agrees to take his brother's place and become the gay blade. Zoro yeah. the gay blade. Zoro the gay blade. No, I got it, Dingus. I said it. <laughs> well, I said it first, and then Tom did. Yeah. Yeah. I just so, so Kelly gets Kelly. I gets repeated what Kelly said first. <laughs> yeah, I came closest to guessing what it was that I was submitting. But yeah, Zoro the gay blade. Uh, after I saw the movie this week, I uh, was walking in the restroom, and there was a, a little boy, maybe six, seven years old, and his father in there. And the little boy was saying – I wrote this down. Hold on. This is a great conversation. Uh, the little boy was saying uh, – oh, no, the father was saying to the little boy, what they were trying to do was show you how hard that was. And then the little boy said, I would never climb Mount Everest. <laughs> and the father said, there are some people who do that sort of thing. So some dad had taken his little six-year-old boy to see Everest. Awesome. That's what the dad would have said if it had been Boogie Nights. Oh, jeez. Kelly Wan. Oh, Way inappropriate. Woo. I like the idea of you taking a walk in the, in the restroom, because it's not like you're like, I was walking in the restroom. 
wonder what the kids are saying about the movie. Hold on, I've got my pad out. <laughs> That's what... Oh, never mind. Never mind. Too soon. Uh, Dingus, what was I seeing at the movie theater this week? Why don't you tell the listeners? Well, this week you were seeing, and we were seeing, mm-hmm. Sicario. Mm-hmm. A 2015 American crime thriller drama movie about, well, it's a spoiler to tell you what I think it's about, so I'll move on. Hmm. Um, we, uh, let's see. It was directed by Dallas Villanueva. Whoa, 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 dingus, back up. You stumbled all over that. Let's try that. Let's do take two. Go ahead. Right. Please. It was directed by v- Dennis Villeneuve. And Wait, written- Really? No. I'm not convinced he's even saying Dennis right. Yeah, it's Denis Villeneuve, I think, because, uh, like, Wikipedia – because I, I, I think it's time we figure out this poor fellow's name because we, we love some of what he's done. Uh, but it's Denis. It's not Dennis. Uh, and the last name is just, like, two syllables. I think it's Villeneuve. Okay. <clears throat> I oh, like uh, Catherine. Well, there's... I've actually had people tell me how it's spelled, uh, how it's said, but that's fine. Oh, oh well, what did you – because I just went to Wikipedia. And there we was used a... to say Dennis Villanueva, but it's not. It's just Dennis Villeneuve. It's Wikipedia because I went to Wikipedia and and there was a weird French phonetic thing which I I just assumed I could speak. phonetic uh, and it seemed like it was Vinu- okay so Dingus we'll go with your pronunciation say it again <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve it's actually Dennis really oh, did a Mexican it could be Dennis or it could be Dennis I think it's Denis because he's a Quebecois I don't know you know what we're a bunch of non-French speakers here so pardon us but we'll go with Dingus's pronunciation well I think the last time we did it we had somebody actually tell us yeah so the last time we did one of his movies we had somebody actually tell us we do everything wrong Kelly one so, you're the closest to France I would think you would know because you live in Germany Wait, you want me to tell you how to pronounce a Mexican name in French? You think he's Mexican? That is awesome. <laughs> it just gets better. I thought it sounded good. a little French. Yeah, Mexican. but that's when I say that he's Quebecois, I mean he's from Quebec, Mexico. Absolutely. Right. So <laughs> That's what I thought you said. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm sorry. Minute, it could be about Mexico if, if he's from Quebec. I, I was pretty proud of myself for what I thought was the definitive pronunciation, but Dingus, I, 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 I will defer to you. I, 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 no, but Denis certainly makes more sense. Well, there's a, there's a French structure. I'm proud of both of you. There's a French director named Claire Denis, which is spelled the same. Uh, oh, all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, you know what, whatever, listeners, you should probably look this up on your own and not trust us. Cause <laughs> yeah, idiots. Fucking uh, morons. All right, so, Dingus, I'm sorry, back up. So, uh, Dingus, week, I like to eat it, Denis. Uh, this week we saw Sicario. Uh, take it from there, Dingus, my apologies. <laughs> it was directed by Denis Villeneuve and written by Taylor Sherida. No, Dingus, no. Absolutely. No, sorry. Taylor Sheridan. By the way, have you seen a picture of Taylor Sheridan? Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's this, this like, I don't know, some guy who looks like he's a, a de, um, not denatured, but uh, de-aged Ron Perlman or something. He's just, Oh, good call. Yeah, he's he's got a very sculpted, like, male model face, kind of, like, with harsh lines going. Uh, yeah, but but a little more, like, statue-y than sculptured. Yes, yes. He, he looks a little brutaled out. But he still, looks like a, he still looks like a big old actor who's just been, like, I wrote a script. Which so is exactly what he is. I mean, you look at his credits, he's mainly an actor, and this is, for, for whatever reason, he came up with this, spoiler, this, this awesome, well... He came up yeah. with a script for Sicario, and this you look at this guy's picture on IMDb, and you're like, that, that's the guy? I <laughs> know. It looks like somebody just cast a guy to be that writer. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Playing Taylor Sheridan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His slab hard body. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so anyway, Taylor Sheridan wrote this. It stars Emily Blunt, uh, Benicio Del Toro, Daniel Kaluuya, and Josh Brolin. Mm. Sicario is rated R. Oh, yeah. It's caught. Puts the R back in Sicario. Where's the moment where you're watching the movie and, they, and you thought, hmm, they lost their PG-13 there. When she lit up a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that when it happened? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When she was asking for a cigarette, I was like, well, there it goes. There's, it's an R. I'm seeing a hard R, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. R. See those, those, that fake brand of cigarettes. That's what we know. Um, it stars Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, Daniel Kaluuya, and Josh Brolin. It is rated R for strong violence. Grizzly images and <laughs> language. Grizzly images. Yeah. No smoking. There's no smoking mentioned, and pointedly, no drug use mentioned. Oh, you know what else has grizzly images? The Edge. Yeah, I, I was waiting on that. Good, good call, Kelly. I was trying to think of one of those myself, but you got it first. There's not that many. I was hoping for, for that. that movie that Tom talked about where the grizzly bear got attacked by a bazooka. That was called Grizzly, so that's a little bit too on the nose. I would have said, you know what else has grizzly images? Legends of the Fall. Mm-hmm. I think it's now it's your turn. What would you have said? I would have said Wait, that's another Hopkins bear movie? He does bears every movie. That's weird. Okay, sorry, what? What was Dingus's bear movie pick? A river run, run, runs through it. <laughs> There's a bear in that? Yeah. I think Anthony Hopkins qualifies. During one shot. No, Dingus is no Dingus has jumped. He's jumped at the bear. Yeah. Uh, Sicario (laughs) is. I think you could call this a critically lauded movie. On Rotten Tomatoes, ninety-three percent of the reviews are positive. You know what else, by the way, you guys has I think ninety-three percent positive on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I believe. Mm, that's 97, I thought. Oh, you know what, Kelly Wand, you might be right. So this is almost as critically lauded as uh, Mad Max. Freaking in the Flash. Let's check out Metacritic, though. This is the average from various reviews. Uh, on Metacritic, it's at 81. Uh, let's see. It opened wide this week. It had a limited release, um, but that's not really going to be a good reflection of how much money it makes. So instead, on its wide opening, it came in at number three. Behind The Martian and Hotel Transylvania 2. Uh, and it made $12 million. Mm. Kelly Wand, I'm looking forward to finding out what you call a synopsis of Sicario. This can go many ways, I think. What would you call a synopsis of the movie Sicario? Sicariopsis. Very good. That's probably what I would have guessed. So, Kelly Wand, do you have a Sicariopsis for us this week? Do I? Yeah. In Arizona, some houses do nothing while some It Follows music plays. A bunch of cops show up with guns. They're all wearing the wrong color camouflage and tiptoeing. One of them whistles to the police tank from straight out of Compton. <laughs> I could see that coming. Very yeah, nice. I, I, <laughs> all right, you get the you get the five dollars on that, Tom. <laughs> five bucks on that. Emily Watson makes a burrito shape with her middle finger. The tank driver slams his turret lever from black people to Mexicans. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, wow. my God. Kelly, why? What? <laughs> oh, it gets worse. It gets way worse. I apologize in advance <coughs> for that, too. They use the tank's gun to open the front door for them, then conduct the rest of the house's destruction on foot. 
Emily Watson goes into a room with a standing Mexican person in it. <laughs> this upsets him, so he shoots the wall. She avenges it. Some cops run in and ask the wall, are you all right? The hole in the wall blinks at them blankly and bleeds dust. Emily Watson's all, that was weird. There's only one person in this room. Why is he shooting walls? They all stare at the hole in the wall till music plays. One cop looks inside the wall, then chokes and goes, wax paper. He starts throwing up uncontrollably for minutes on end. All the cops go outside and they're all throwing up all over the driveway for unrelated reasons. Some letters in a Mexican font are all Sicariopsis. <laughs> title screen for the opsis. I don't no, no. What? There was no opening. Uh, there wasn't an opening title card. No, no, it? we didn't. We did occasionally didn't. for dramatic effect. We didn't get it until the end. Yeah. As they say. Yeah, but in the opsis, they give you better value. Uh, fair, good point. Uh, good point, yeah. We pay for what we get. There was, Emily, the, there was the epitaph, though, about what the word means, wasn't there? <laughs> or not yeah. epitaph. That was the epitaph. It was a it was a prepotaph. Yeah, not what do you call it? An epigraph? Uh, epigraph. Whatever. There was, but there was the opening title card about what it was. Called a prologue. So, uh, okay, I'll go with that. All right, everyone, I'm sorry. Like, we're we're running rough shot over the Sicariopsis. I apologize. It said something like an assassin in Mexico is called Sicariopsis. Right. Including like that's exactly what it said. Emily Watson goes outside, removes her bulletproof hat does a hair flip and goes, hey guys, that vomit's evidence. Make sure you bag it all before you put it in the van, eh? Her black friend's all, Emily. He touches her boob platonically. We found a garage. She's all, where? He's all, next to the house. Another cop blows some dust into the garage and goes, hey look, there's a trap door with a combination lock on it. She's all, combination lock? On a door in a garage? That's weird. Right, you guys open it. I'll be back in the house looking for more signs of wax paper. That smell inside's kind of growing on me. The dust-blowing cops all, uh, you don't want to be here when we open this? Seems out of character for you, curiosity-wise. She's all, now! She walks back toward the house. A cop walks past outside with bolt cutters. She's all, wait, wait, hang on! Trots into the house, crouches by the farthest wall, puts her fingers in her ears. Then she's all, okay, go ahead! The garage blows up. She walks outside, coughs, and sees a severed arm near her black friend. A cop walks on screen, looks at the arm, and explodes. Emily's all. That arm was there before, you fool. The arm throws up. She goes home, takes a blood shower, rubs some dust into her hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you get clean. Fuson. It's a problem with the pipes, I heard. Also, the the house that she went to, that was the uh, place. The water... um, department so blood shower <clears throat> then she goes to the glass wall room at her work to wait with her black friend her boss is all sitting at a table with james brolin and sandals to call her in and give her shit for not being blown up brolin looks at me and goes hi kelly three weeks in a row <laughs> very nice Jaden Smith points at me and laughs. I'm the buffoon. They ask her into the room by gesturing till she finally notices. <laughs> Brolin's all, Hi, Emily, I'm actor James Brolin. Are you married? No kids? She's all, fuck no, and I'm free tonight. Ready? By the way, do you have a clean bra I can borrow? 
the cops all mutter together. Uh, woman character. Uh, Brolin's all, uh, I'm only asking because we want you to join a mysterious task force. Uh, we can only take bachelors, unless they're males. Then we flip a coin. Does that mean I get to pay back the bastards who killed me casual acquaintances in that hostage garage opening mission this morning? And by payback, I mean kill, not give money to. Brolin's all, who? She's all, then I'm in. She walks out while they're still asking her stuff, then goes home and takes another blood shower, this time wearing her customary dirty bra and towel. When she emerges into her living room, she sees her black friend has let himself into her apartment and is waiting on the couch with a platonic heart on. She smiles and goes, you know how long it's been since someone I'm attracted to seen me with my shower bra on? He's all, yeah, well, you look like shit. I have a friend whose type that is. Now, come on, I'll drive you to the DEA toll booth. I guess you don't own a car. She's all, I parked it in that garage that blew up earlier. I look over at the giant tarantula sitting next to me and go, <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yes, thank you. Gee, I've never seen a black character play a pimp before. <laughs> she gets on a private plane with James Brolin and Javier Bardem. <laughs> oh. Week one. She's all, Oi, what's me job again and where are we going? Arugula? Brolin yawns and goes to sleep. She looks over at Javier Bardem and goes, God damn that Brolin. That was rude of him, eh? Bardem jolts and opens his eyes, screaming. <laughs> She's all, oh, I didn't know you were asleep. He's all, I wasn't. She's all, Oi, what's me job and where are we going? He yawns and falls asleep. I lean over to the decapitated corpse wrapped in plastic hanging next to me and whisper, <laughs> My dirty bra strat results have also been spotty. Literally. <laughs> the plane lands in a Mexican country with a landing strip in it. A bunch of black SUVs pick them up and drive them through the border crossing a couple times. Mexican country. <laughs> I figured out Dingus's zone. It's super easy once you know it. The hard part's cracking it. She's all, oi, what's with the vans? Why didn't we just land a jet in Mexico? Brolin yawns, that's classified, falls asleep. She looks at Bardem and goes, I'll bet his sandals were made using child labor here in your country. He's all, I'm from Cartagena. She's all, oh, that's not a country, idiot. Sighs. She's all, I wish me black friend was here. No offense. She visualizes her black friend's face. It yawns at her and falls asleep. They drive into a Mexican city, not called that, while a bunch of Mexican police show up on dune buggies and drive around them in circles to make them feel at home. <laughs> they go park outside a wall. A couple cats meow distantly. The gay soldier driving Emily's SUVs all, You that? Those ain't firecrackers. Eventually, some soldiers in Bardem come out of a gate with a guy with a bag over his head. Emily's all, My God, how ugly can that man be? The drive back to the border. They drive back to the border and get stuck in traffic. Emily's all, see, this is why we should just use planes to travel in. Mexico's a desert. The whole country's a runway. And by we, I mean everybody. We should fly planes just to change the channel on TV. Way fast than using a bloody remote, if you ask me. Artem farts awake. <gasps> he squints in a few random directions, then goes, Green Civic at quarter to three o'clock. Black pot with bullet holes in it at, oh, 2400. Emily's all, don't be ridiculous. I'll lock the call we already have. Brolin pulls out a gun and tells Emily, Stay here and look frustrated. Everybody gets out and starts shooting carfuls of sleeping Mexicans. 
Since she hates feeling helpless, Emily stays in the car as instructed. She sees a guy in scuba gear walking past her side view. <laughs> wait, wait, I could explain! She shoots him in the face. I look over at Bei Ling sitting beside me and go, okay. I think with P.F. Chang's, you guys are just getting hung up on the name. Meanwhile, in the sand-themed driveway of Guantanamo, Emily kicks dirt on Brolin's sandal and goes, God damn it, Brolin, I didn't sign on for this. Me job's working... Me job's walking through holes in residence walls made by tanks and blowing up garages, not issuing moving violations. Two cars impounded, one scuba diver dead. Zero interest. I need to know exposition now. Sound like uh, Richard Aote, kind of, huh? Oh, very good. Wow. wow. Absolutely, everyone. Didn't mean to. And what's Abby Abadam doing with that giant sparkles water jug? Oh, yeah, we're in Mexico. Can I have some? Roland's all, look, sugar kicks, we just need you to wait out here while we men go inside and brutally interrogate. I mean, uh, marry the Mexican cartel guy we just uh, proposed to. Where to find a tunnel with a bunch of immigrants sitting down inside it? Actually, you could just leave if you want. Oh, yeah, and some coffee would be great. She's all, yeah, you know what it sounds like to me? Like the CIA's just one big old boys club. He's all, what can I say? My last name's Brolin. <laughs> While she's still stammering for a response, Brolin drives off in a signature convoy of black SUVs while music plays, covering her in dust. Emily's black friend pulls up, covering her in more dust, and honks. He's all, don't worry, I'm here. Damn, girl, you look like shit, same as usual. How is Texas? She's all, Texas was Mexico. Now come on and follow that convoy to the immigrant tunnel. All I need to have answers, and I won't rest until I get them. Ten hours later at the channel between Mexico and Tucson... Right, I give up. I suppose getting answers is overrated. Her black friend's all, I got this shit. Yo, Brolin, Bardem, need a motherfucking word with y'all by the CIA truck. <laughs> by the truck, Brolin's all. So the black friend's all, give me some exposition now, bitch, or I'm driving back to Mexico to do some shopping. Brolin's all, uh, all right, later, asshole. No one cares what your name is anyway. Emily's all, damn you, Brolin, I didn't fucking sign on for this. My job shooting scuba divers. And intimidating Mexicans in their homes, not the tunnels. If black friend goes, I go too. The black friend's all, uh, I only have room for one, like I said, shopping. Mexico, you can get some pretty cool deals, especially on confetti and blow. Brolin's all, fine, look, we're just interrogating these tunnel immigrants until they tell us we can find a different tunnel where a Mexican cop likes to put money in a trunk. Now head back to Tucson, we need you to arrest a lady in a parking lot. Look for a van with me in it. Oh yeah, and if you could pick up my dry cleaning... Later in a parking lot. Get on the head now! Hands on your asphalt! I mean, uh... Nice! Wait, who is this woman again? Why do we need to sit in this van two blocks away? Sitting in a van's not what I signed up for when I signed up to be a knock. Wearing headphones and staring at sine wave screens, Brolin yawns at her and falls asleep. Emily's all, fuck this, I'm going into the bank to yell at the old teller. And maybe vice versa. She gets out and walks across the parking lot while a clumsy cop struggles to put rolls of cash with purple rubber bands into a duffel bag. But it keeps blowing away like the manuscript pages in Wonder Boys. Emily Watson stops and sighs impatiently while there's a bunch of close-ups of the rubber bands. Then she keeps walking. In the bank, she walks up to a teller and goes, That's it! Everybody's under arrest! Start with me! Her boss is all, Emily, can I speak with you privately in this office? This is also a police station, by the way. In the argument room, she's all, damn it, Brolin, I mean, uh, Bostwick, David Morse, trying to get convictions in Tucson's not what I signed on for. I need answers, questions, metaphors, shrugs, runarounds, damn it, Depp, give me something. 
look, Emily, I know how you feel. Just kidding. My motivation is impossible to pinpoint. We've got to play ball with these guys. It's our best way of doing whatever our job is. They've got jets. They've got water jugs. We now had to borrow the bolt cutters that cut the padlock on the trap door that blew up the garage that killed 36 of our best cops and briefly made you cough. Do you have any idea how boring it feels to have to write all that to their loved ones 36 times because our printer's on the fritz? I don't. I had Connie do it. She's all fine. She storms out, walks up to her black friend and goes, thanks to work stress, I need to get wasted. How ironic. Come on. They go to a honky-tonk Arizona cowboy bar where black people are popular. Her black friend's all, Emma, I'd like to introduce you to Walking Dead Shane. He's my best white friend. I trust him more than I trust myself, and I thought maybe you'd enjoy his dick. He's divorced too, so maybe you both have the same hang-ups. Shane dry humps Emily on the dance floor while the black friend and a random blonde nod approvingly. <laughs> then they both go back to Shane's place and make out on his beanbag for a while. Yeah. He's all, mm, I love how dirty and covered in blood your bra is. She's all, mm, you sound like me mum. They kiss and fart some more. He's all, fuck, my pocket's so full of items, I suddenly need to remove from it. Just taking my pants off, probably faster, but here we go. Oh, here we go. There's that. Uh, put that out there. Not going to look at it. Probably irrelevant. Uh, just put that there right in your view. Hey, you're not looking at it. There you go. Hey, you're looking at it now. Hey, right there. Purple rubber band. Ooh. Ooh. And on the coffee table. Boom. <laughs> And set it down. Hey, look at it. She stares at it in horror. She's all, crikey, the same color rubber band as one in a previous shot. He looks at it and goes, fuck, ugh, damn, this is so embarrassing. I wasn't even in that scene. What the fuck was I thinking, bringing that to my strangle date? She's all, eh, yeah, I think I'll just get up here and go to the kitchen far away where he left me gun that I brought along on me date. Oh, okay, cool. I'm glad you're not being weird about any of this. I know how convoluted. Hey, why are you looking at me like that while I strangle you? And why is it taking so long? What's your windpipe made of? Fucking adamantium? <laughs> Javier Bardem is all... Then he makes... That's his answer. 20 minutes later... Javier... That was a close one. But had you know I was going to a bar where I'd meet a man who'd eventually bring me here and strangle me? Who? Later outside, her black friends all. Yo, Emily, good news. I talked to Shane. Says he's up for a sec get-together once all this blows over. I gave him your number in one of your bras. Meanwhile, in an interrogation car, Javier Bardem licks his finger and sticks it in Shane's ear while James Brolin <laughs> leaps in the rearview mirror like a taxi driver and dressed to kill. Ah, ah, tickle, stop. <laughs> Your saliva's so cold. <laughs> How can up so wrong feel so right? <sighs> Look, we know all about your wife and Laramie and the stepneys in Winnetka. Brolin's all. Both of which disqualify you for membership in my elite squad of bachelor torture and drug buster scoop killers, unfortunately. Shane's all, look, you guys saw how lame I am at strangling and not outing myself with rubber bands. How much you guys honestly think a dumbass like me could possibly know? Brolin's all, that's not a problem, Frenchie. You're going to tell us where the improvision tunnel by the dinner table's at, or my friend here's going to do something so unethical, we may not even be able to show it on screen in a family film. He nods at Bardem. Bardem licks his pinky and sticks it all the way up Shane's nose. <laughs> Shane's all, uh, wait, which one of this is this really torturing? Emily Watson stomps up to the car window, throws her bra and the rubber band in at them, and blusters. Damn it, Brolin, this isn't what I signed on for, not getting strangled or laid. One rubber band, two, um... 
Shane sighs and rolls the window up on her throat. She starts gagging. Guys, he's doing it again. Little help. (laughs) Later in black and white. Okay, we see ten white dots approaching your position from the south. (laughs) That's us, fuckhead. Also, your podcast on the cartel's channel. Also, you don't need to whisper. It's not how sound works, you idiot. Sorry. Okay. You guys are in a tunnel now shooting people. Wish we could help out more. The shaking camp's pretty bad. Night vision used to be green. How do we go backwards? Emily Watson finds a garage with Brolin and a crooked Mexican cop in it. She draws her gun and goes, get away from the law enforcement official now. Eh, wait, yeah, get away. Okay, the Latin American law enforcement official of dubious morals. Wait, uh, uh, Bardem shoots her in the chest four times and goes, be glad for your Kevlar. Now, if you excuse me, I have to make this cop stop a car so I can use a knife on someone else to drive the car up to. Never mind, you'll see. He gets in the police car with the cop and drives off. Emily Watson chokes. Oh, wasn't wearing Kevlar. She crawls back from the tunnel to Brolin, who's shaking the sand out of his sandals. She's all, God damn it, Brolin, running the risk of getting shot. It's not what I signed on for. Now, what's the plan? Uh, actually, we don't do anything for the rest of the movie. What? But I'm the main character. Jesus, it's fucking Edge of Tomorrowland all over again. Tom was right. She starts strangling herself. Guys, little help. <coughs> meanwhile, in a car with James Brolin. Wait. Meanwhile, in a car with Javier Bardem and a different <laughs> accident in it. Okay, there's a porch coming up on your left and a Mexican right ahead of you in the front seat with your uh, knife sticking out of his throat. Yes, thank you. Why are you still whispering? He sighs, shuts the door, walks up to the mansion, and shoots the two guards standing there listening to all this. Okay, there's six more, but they're not in the movie, so uh, perimeter scared. Bardem walks through the house and up to his enemy while the guy and his family are eating dinner. The guy's all, Bardem! Uh, Look, man, when I decapitated your daughter, it was strictly business. Uh." The butler comes in and goes, Sir, you guys still want that brulee? To the evil man, Bardem's all, you put families to death every dinner. Why should tonight be any different? The butler's all, K4 brulees, and leaves. Javier Bardem shoots them all dead, then goes, Now, before I shoot you, know that this is for my family. Uh, fuck. Wrong order. The butler returns with brulees. He sees all the dead bodies and shakes his head in annoyance at Bardem. The next day, Emily Watson's doing her daily morning ritual of standing on a balcony doing nothing. Suddenly, she hears a fart, smells jalapenos, and sees her curtain billow. Wow. She's all, <laughs> Shane, is that you? She goes in and sighs with disappointment. It's just Javier Bardem with a gun and some paperwork. He's all, Sign the saying I didn't kill anybody or hold a gun to your chin or to carry a water bottle to a torture session. She's all, Now. He's all, You remind me of my daughter at my age. He holds a gun to her throat and cocks it. She's all, All right, disregard. He uncocks the gun. She keeps his eyes on it. <laughs> she keeps her eyes on his face while she signs. He looks down and says, uh, you just signed the gun. Eventually she gets it right. He stands up, takes the gun apart, then throws three pieces of it on the floor. He's all there. That ought to take you at least ten seconds to put back together. Speaking of which, uh, where's your gun? Shane's kitchen counter still. Yes, I let love blind me. Story me life. Uh, well, go somewhere boring. This is a country for the wolves, not women. But don't go too far north. You'll run into bear issues. Like on the edge. And more wolves, also. 
Stay out of up there. Also, I've heard New Zealand has a bee problem. They might rename it New Beeland. He walks out. He goes downstairs, crosses the parking lot, then hears a go, Oi! I'm all the gun on you up here. You're under arrest. Signing paperwork's not what I signed on for. He just turns and stares back at her for a second, then yawns and keeps going. Over her shoulder, her black friend's all, Yeah, I can kind of see his point. She screams startled and shoots him in the head. I look over at Danny Trejo sitting beside me and go, The thing I really hate about NAFTA is that they're pedophiles. He scowls, I think. The end. All right, I want to go around the table here. Uh, what Denis Villeneuve movies have we all seen? I know we've all seen Enemy. We really liked Enemy a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Who here besides me has seen Prisoners? I saw the middle third of it. Okay, Dingus, did you ever see Prisoners? No, you waved me off of it, so I didn't bother. Uh, Okay, so who here? I have not seen Incendies. Dingus, I know you have, right? Yeah. Kelly, have you seen Incendies? The fuck's that? It's uh, one of his earlier movies. Um, Hmm. All right, so... uh, Sounds Spanish, too. uh, And Dingus, I forget what you told... Like, Incendies, uh, I've sort of been reluctant to see it because it's a prison movie, right? Uh, I think you're thinking of um, um, Prophet. Oh, shoot, you're right, the flesh and bone guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right, so yeah, I know nothing about him, Cindy. Uh, all right, so uh, that said... It looks so like the, the, the poster for, for Incendies, the poster for this movie, and the poster for Enemy, certain, they look like they're done by the same artist. If you look at the at the at like this weird sort of cutout and thing, so I'm... Really curious about that, but anyway, go on, Tom. Well, I was definitely thinking of a prophet. You're right. I, I screwed that up. Um, all right, so we've all pretty much seen a couple of, uh, except for Kelly, a couple of Denis Villeneuve movies. Uh, I, I just want to start off by saying, God damn, I loved this, and I, I really didn't care for Prisoners at all. Uh, but I'm, I, I kind of want to go back and see it again. I think this guy is is a phenomenal director. Um, and I just was so giddy watching this thing uh, by how much I loved it and how much I loved what he was doing as a director. Uh, I'm totally in love with this guy. Uh, so that's my initial take. Uh, where are you guys now on Denis Villeneuve? Dingus? Uh, you know, I have not seen Prisoners, so I can't say. I don't remember a thing about Incendies. I'm sorry. Um, but given what I know about Enemy and this, uh, I am totally knocked out. I mean, this this movie is entirely, uh, it's one of those amazing movies that is at once exhilarating and exhausting. Because, uh, you know, I was I was shaking by the end of it. It's really hard to watch, um, but in a really, really good way. Uh, it's, I, in my estimation, utterly brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was utterly exhausting as well. So uh, it has a lot in common with Enemy. A lot more than I was expecting, especially when I went back and watched Enemy. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited okay. to see what else this guy does. And I so, have not seen Prisoners based on your recommendation, uh, but maybe I will go back and watch it. All right. So Kelly, having just seen Enemy, uh, what are your thoughts about this director now? And in a, in a nutshell, how'd you feel about uh, Sicario? Well, when I saw Prisoners, I was interesting, but I thought really slow and like. Um I don't know, just slow, like slow paced. And Enemy, I thought was very 
it's very about its concept. Like there's no filler or shenanigans in it. Like everything in it's there for a reason. And it's not like this is different from that, but this is like a cop movie, and it's like kind of the most conventional of the three movies. And it's got Roger Deakins' cinematography. Man, does it, yeah. Yeah, it sure does. Man, that was not a surprise at the end. And the cast is amazing. And we were also coming off Black Mass, so um, we were kind of ready. (laughs) I mean, you're you're so right that it's it's, it's a very conventional movie, and I kind of put this in the same category. And I think you guys both disagree with me on this. as seven in that I feel seven has a very pedestrian script. Uh, it's a typical serial killer movie, yeah. but David Fincher's style does so much to elevate it. Uh, I kind of feel that way about this. I don't think Taylor Sheridan's script is necessarily anything special, but what, what Dennis Villeneuve does with, with the script and with applying his own style, taking this kind of genre crime story and turning it into a really disarming moody downbeat thriller uh is ingenious it's like seven in other ways too because it's about a failure basically it's about a main character kind of not prevailing well no it is, i totally disagree with that okay, yeah let's hear it let's hear it uh i yeah because I, I i'm i i'm really curious like so you one of my problems Emily Blunt's character no, I, I, because I, I don't think the movie is i mean i think that a lot of the you know, when once I went back and looked at it, what I've heard like just whispers about is that it's compared to traffic. And this is not a movie about the drug trade. This is a movie about revenge. So I don't believe this is a failure movie. It, it is essentially a movie about revenge, and it has much more to do with what um, what Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Enemy is talking about controlling chaos than it does have to do with okay. something trenchant about the drug war. So Kelly Wand, because I think I'm I'm kind of Dingus, you're absolutely not wrong. But I think I'm kind of agreeing with Kelly Wan. Kelly Wan, I want to hear why you say it's a movie about a failure. Well, I mean, she is trying to do the right thing, but also um, she's really committed to her work, and she's really good at her job. She's a really competent professional, but she keeps getting blocked for the whole movie. And in the end, like, hasn't she's failed at everything. She hasn't made any difference. She's she's lost her honor like Ned Stark. She signed the paperwork she never thought she'd sign. She's just compromised everything, all of her principles. So, Dingus, here's why I kind of disagree. You're, you're not wrong. I mean, the, the movie, it, it does this really cool shift where at the end, you're absolutely right, Dingus. It becomes a story about revenge, and it reminds me a lot of Zero Dark Thirty and how it asks us to examine our feelings about revenge. Right. Um, so much of this, by the way, my, my over is Zero Dark Thirty by a sliver uh, because so much of this movie reminds me of Zero Dark Thirty. But I'm with Kelly – and that I feel the overall point of this movie, even though there's a great reveal and this this weird climax that, that, that it is about revenge, to me, I kind of feel the overall point of this movie, and I'm not even sure that Denis Villeneuve meant to do this, but I feel the overall point of this movie is about the ineffectualness of idealism. Uh, and then in that sense, it is about the failure of Emily Blunt's idealism to A, make a difference, and B, sustain itself. Um, so whereas I agree with you, yeah, there's a, there's this awesome revenge reveal. Uh, I kind of feel that the overall point, what I came away from it with is this idea that idealism fails. Well, I, you know, I, I don't see that as a failure because of something that is said to her in the middle of the movie by Josh Brolin's character. The, the, the reason you are here is to be a sponge. You're here to be a sponge, to watch things and to learn. Mm -hmm. That's why you're here. 
And so this is, uh, this is the twin lines of this movie are her coming of, is her coming of age. She's not really necessarily the cliched rookie, but she and her yes. partner Reggie are like they've been kicking doors since day one, but they still are looked at as green. But this is still her coming of age as far as learning something. But this isn't a failure. This is her learning something. This is her learning. And in this case, you're right, Tom. She's learning how not to be idealistic in that way. She's learning. And But I think that the other line of that is that it is a revenge thriller, and we find out that the the character that we thought was an ancillary character is really the guy right. who's been driving the whole movie, and he and gets it, exactly what he wants. And it's the significance of the title, too, because as I'm watching, I'm wondering why right. this is called Hitman. Right. And yeah, So I think it's about that first line, I, I want to say, and I might be wrong about this. I, I think at that point, Brolin is lying to her, because I think what we find out is that she is only there as a formality. Right, right. Right, 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 from his point of view. But I think from the point uh, of view of what the movie wants to lead us to. She doesn't think that at the end of the movie. Oh, wait, she let, let Dingus finish. Let, let Dingus finish. It, it doesn't matter what what she thinks. What she's doing in the, through this movie is learning how to grow up, is learning to become. Okay. I mean, and, and she's learning. She's a sponge. I want to jump in there because I definitely agree with you, Dingus, but I think what she's learning isn't – necessarily and, and who knows where the movie goes after the end right. isn't necessarily how to be uh, a better agent or how to work with the cia uh, right. i think what she's learning is that her idealism has no place in this struggle and in that sense i kind of see it as a failure you know the fact that she signs that paper with literally a gun to her head uh i, I mean her idealism is compromised and i agree with you dingus and as a guy who looks at politics and has a very specific political leaning, I don't see it as a failure. I think that it's an important lesson um, that idealism does not work uh, in these kinds of situations and that abandoning idealism is an important step to resolving these situations. Right. However, from her perspective, and maybe I, I think the movie Claire Den uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve was trying to make is – like I, I'm wonder, I think he wants us to be sad about her loss of idealism. Like I think he wants to make it not, not a tragedy, but uh, but ultimately, uh, 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 like it's, it's a bad thing that has happened to her. Yeah. I don't think it, I don't think the movie approves of her loss of idealism, um, and, well, and that's why I kind of say it's, it, it. I agree with Kelly that it's kind of about a, a failure. Uh, well, I, I don't think that the movie approves of it either. But it's not just a loss of idealism. It's her understanding that he's right that she's not a wolf. She doesn't belong in this world. I mean, she can do a certain thing. She can't do these things that that this particular world of wolves demands of her. She's not a wolf. Right. She's just not. She might be a hyena. She might be some other sort of animal that leads <laughs> that leads the, the the rest of the pack to the kill. But but she's not a wolf, and right. I think that's what she learns when she's standing on the balcony. And it's not just a loss of idealism; it's also an understanding of who she is. And that's there's a breakdown for her as she as she understands that. But it's also an understanding of what she really is. And right. I don't see and that necessarily as a failure. I see that as well, growth. Well, what she really is is not someone who can rein in the chaos or the drug trade in Mexico. Right. In right. that sense, I think it's a failure. But, um, but the movie isn't ultimately about reigning in the chaos so much as it about a, a battle between chaos and control. 
which is ultimately sort of funneled into revenge, and which is the, which you know all of these I because even Josh Brolin is is kind of selling her a, a different idealism. He's not killing her idealism. He's selling her a different one. He's selling. He's saying, well, what we had was this kind of control, and if we're and if and until twenty percent of the population stops snorting things, then we have to do this. That's a different brand of idealism. But See, when it comes right down to it, it's just Benicio del Toro wanting to kill the guy who killed his wife and his daughter. Right, but I don't, I don't see that as idealism at all. I mean, this idea, and this is kind of what's weird for me, is I think uh, Denis Villeneuve was wanting to make a movie where we're supposed to be aghast at the idea of the CIA collaborating with the Colombian drug lords to rein in Mexican <laughs> uh, the Mexican drug trade. I right. mean, I think that reveal is supposed to be this idea that America is corrupt, that we violate another co- country's sovereignty, um, that we're basically in bed with some very terrible people to resolve a situation. And I kind of feel like the movie wants us to be disapproving of that. Um, yeah. But I just, but, from my own perspective, uh, didn't feel like I'm, – I'm watching the movie. You, you get this reveal, and I'm kind of thinking – you know, where's the problem here? That's not a bad idea. Uh, right. We have historically, as a country, uh, aligned ourselves with some very terrible people right. in order to sustain order and protect our own interests. And I think this movie is just another example of that kind of thing. And I think what it's selling us as something we're supposed to be horrified at is actually something that that is effective, that I don't necessarily have a problem with. Um Wait, what? That's different from the movie wants us to disapprove of it. To like, I don't know. I'm surprised you you put it like that. Well, like I, you're so, that well, go ahead and explain what you like, meant, because well, I'm not quite sure what you meant either. <laughs> well, so I, I think the thing is that uh, you know it's it's a reveal. There's a couple of reveals here. One is that he's just using Emily Blunt as as a formality. Uh, right. Another is that the CIA is working with the Colombian drug cartels. Basically, Josh Brolin representing one, Benicio del Toro representing the other, and that the U.S. policy at work here is that we aim the drug cartels at the Mexicans and we let them destroy Mexico, the the Mexican drug trade, so that they can then impose their own control over it. You know, that the Colombian drug lords are going to restore control to the drug trade up to – the southern border of the United States. Um, now, that's not, you know, the war on drugs ideally should be <clears throat> that we stomp out the Colombians and the Mexicans. But or legalize in, them. In this sense of real politic, you know, what, the, what we are doing is saying, okay, it's better that we have uh, order, that we have a – basically it's like putting a dictator in charge of a country rather than letting the country fall apart. So what the movie is saying is – what if there was this terrible deal where we're, we're, you know, we're letting the Colombians destroy the Mexican drug trade so they can take control of it? You know, better, better to the Colombians than the Mexicans because they're it is like black mass. Similar. It is like a, an unholy deal. But, but I mean, but, I, but the idea I think in in uh, Sicario is that it's national. Is that it's a national policy implemented by elected officials? Right. You know, there was also that very specific thing where. Where uh, I, I forget who it is that says to Emily Blunt, Victor um, Garber, right, right, right. That's right. Victor Garber says, uh, you know, this isn't up to me. 
And this is no longer something that is in the hands of appointed officials. This is what elected people are having us do. And when he says that, I think we're supposed to think, ooh, that's terrible. But when I heard that, I was like, I'm kind of on board with that. That's good. See, yeah, that's on board. Like when I heard that, I, I kind of felt like, yeah, they do that all the time. No shit. Like they've been doing – America has been doing this for like decades. Like it's not a shock. And so I think that's like – like, how naive is she that she's part of this operation even so far? She's, like, been a cop. Like, she has to know all that's just going on. But I would say I'm on board with it. Like, it's well, good. That's why I call what Josh it's Brolin is talking about idealism, because it's it's basically this switching off as to which tire are we going to it's ride when. It's flavor. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's ideal. I, I think it's real. It's like, it's like realism. It's cynical. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's Kissinger's idea of real politic, where you, you don't let idealism – uh, influence how you conduct foreign policy. Uh, okay, you, you let you let reality. The whole idea of real politics is, you know, you do things that might be immoral on a foreign on a you know when you're talking about a geopolitical level uh, internationally. Uh, you don't do things according to what's moral and right and ethical. You uh, okay. do things according to what works. Um, so I and I think it's the opposite of of idealism. Um, yeah, but but that's just, you know that's semantic. I mean, I think we're all right. This is all semantic, and that's that's the thing. It's like the script's the weak link, and now we're kind of carrying that guy's water for him by. Like, well, I, d- I disagree with you. I don't think the script is weak. I think it's a really good script. I disagree with you on that. I think it's I, a I, really good script. I love the story, and I think that there's a lot of really good stuff in it. Uh, and I think the actors do an awesome job with these lines. I mean, I think it's. I don't think it's a bad script. When I, say, yeah, when I say the script, though, I don't just mean the dialogue. I mean just as a story about the uh, rookie DE or FBI agent um, sort of coming into this larger plot uh, and how she's, like, inexperienced. And, uh, yeah, like, I, I – if like, imagine this thing is directed by someone like uh, Peter Hyams or something. Um, I, I could see that. Like, I could see this in, in the hands of a less capable director – Watching it and really not thinking the script is anything special. Um, also, Dingus, like you're like you and Tom are both really smart guys, and so like if you're disagreeing this vehemently about like the meaning of the movie, that makes me suspect something wrong with the script. Well, no, I don't think. No, no, that's not it's true. A parallax. No. I mean, so Dingus, let me let me ask. Like, do you do you I think that, do you think that the movie does or doesn't approve of things like this idea that we're dealing with the Colombians? Um, like, do you think the movie is approved? And even torture, for instance. Like, do you think the movie approves of what the CIA does? Because I kind of think, and I could be wrong, that Taylor Sheridan's script is supposed to make the audience think that that's bad and yeah. it's terrible. Now, now, I maybe that's wrong. That's just the impression I got. Is that this is this disapproving script about what the CIA is doing? Um, do you kind of like? Where do you think? The opinion of the script and the director, by the way, falls in terms of its perspective or judgment on what's happening in the movie. Well, I think the the, the script has a definite point of view as far as how um, jurisdiction is supposed to happen and how that is being violated, not only in this country, but I think it's also calling into question larger questions why it's constantly referencing Iraq as as far as – as far as uh, her partner's character is concerned, and, and visually uh, too, by the way. I mean, I, I think oh, yeah, you yeah. Can watch this without. I mean, it very clearly is evoking this idea of like a failed state and the, the military uh, and hired contractors. Like, I, I think very clearly there's kind of Iraq looming in the background of this movie. Right, yeah. and there's a reason why they have Dennis Kaluuya, who's 
this this character named Reggie Wayne uh, is also a lawyer. I mean, yep. there's a reason why he. I think he is making a definite judgment about our policies uh, abroad as opposed to how we act at home and what we're supposed to be able to do home and what we're supposed to not be able to do home. But again. I think that those are subsidiary to the fact that this is basically a revenge story. No, and, no, no and I know. But, but do you feel, though, that Taylor Sheridan's script wants is, is disapproving or approving? Because I do – like, would you agree with me, and maybe you don't, that the script wants us to think that these jurisdictional issues that you're mentioning are, are a bad thing? Uh, I want the, I think the script wants us to understand that Emily Blunt's character thinks they are a disapproving thing, okay. but doesn't understand that fully based on her experience. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't think it's forcing us to think one way or the other. I, I don't think it's forcing us. No, no, not forcing us to think, but do you think it has, you say it has a perspective, and I kind of feel like that perspective is is negative. Or, yeah. But, but I watch the movie, and I don't feel that it's negative. <clears> like, I... That's sort of where I and I'm and that's not part well, of why I'm more direction than script, don't you think? I mean, that's why we look at the drain instead of looking at the waterboarding. Mm, but I think the, the I think we look at the drain instead of the waterboarding because it wants us to think that the waterboarding is is terrible, don't you think? Well, no. If you want to make a point about the waterboarding being horrible, then you show us that as you did in Dark no. Thirty. If you want us to just focus on something else, you need to focus on the. Okay, so, so then that's, that, that's part of our movie. Uh, no, 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 then that's from that. Right, and that's something that I would get. So, do you then think that the movie is approving of the torturing of of Guillermo Diaz? Like, do you think it, like its perspective is it pro because or because it's on showing the drain? Well, I don't instead. think the script is, but I, I think the movie is okay. is. Is is just not showing us that because it's not showing us that. I mean, I don't. I, I think that the, you kind of made the point yourself. But but I'm curious. I mean, I I think it's trying to be anti-torture. Like it's trying to say yes. torture and waterboarding is terrible. But me, Tom Chick, watching this movie, loves and torture. I, I think it kind of gets away. It, it's almost like the subject gets away from the movie. Oh, I, I, I think that this totally is disagree because I I had to look away at certain points. I, I, mean, I think that, and Benicio del Toro is ripping that guy's hair out in the cop car. I mean, that's it's yeah, really just, hard to watch that shit. I mean, I mean we and I was thinking about Zero to Dark Thirty as we watched this and thinking about you know my feelings about that as we talked about Zero Dark Thirty and my feelings about this having this guy in this room about to be waterboarded and we didn't show it. Uh, right, I, I think that that the movie is trying to basically say that this was a bad this is a bad thing, you know torture is something that the United States shouldn't be doing. Uh, but in this scene, watching it, I sort of felt like this is kind of like like this movie is showing us that it is effective. And I personally disagree, by the way, with that part of it. Uh, I don't think we should torture. I, I think us torturing people is too big a compromise of our ideals. Um, but I think the movie is, it, you know, Zero Dark Thirty, by the way, was very pointed about not necessarily uh, saying like it was it was a little ambiguous, but Zero Dark Thirty was dinged from both sides of the opinion yeah, yeah. on being pro or against torture. I think this movie is kind of trying to say, ooh, this torture is horrifying, we shouldn't have done it. But what's weird to me is that this movie is also making it clear that it was effective and necessary. Uh, right. And yet I don't quite uh, make the, I don't quite have the idea of how of how that worked out in the same way that I don't understand, and I think we weren't supposed to understand the link in Zero Dark Thirty is to how the, all those guys and women and children waiting outside the buses and how we selected all these guys and then we wound up with the three guys in the hotel in the motel room, how that all works out as far as what that guy gave up 
you know, where the thing was and all of that. I mean, I, I don't all, I don't see all of those links. Okay. Uh, it's just to, it's to me it's kind of odd that uh, that I think that, that this this being a movie about someone losing their ideals about basically a jurisdictional issue. You know, should the CIA be working in in, uh, in Mexico? Uh, should the CIA basically be working as a paramilitary group? Uh, I, I kind of feel like this issue has pretty much been resolved as as far as the opinion of 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 us as a, as a country. Um, Hmm. Well, it's and, no surprise anymore. So. Like I remember, and Dingus, you would probably know better than, than me. Wasn't there a plot line on West Wing where, where President Bartlett struggled with this idea of whether or not we assassinate people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. plot line, and uh, and he decided to. Yeah. And and I kind of feel like that uh, ship has sailed. Like that has been resolved. We assassinate people. Um, you know, no one, and and we violate other nations' sovereignty. No one right. who watches Zero Dark Thirty frets about the sovereignty of Pakistan being violated. Um, and, and I think even though, you know, there, there is opposition to thing like, things like drone strikes, that's now an implemented part of, of American policy. We right. do assassinate people. We do violate the sovereignty of, of other countries. Uh, we do it in pursuit of what is called uh, the war on terror, which is an awfully glib way to put it. And I think this movie is saying we also do it in the war on drugs and that it's a bad thing. But watching this movie, I kind of felt like I'm not sold on it being a bad thing. But that's because it's sort of presented that way. Like it's kind of a loaded deck against Emily Blunt's character. Like she's in a situation right. where she's basically Daffy Duck and Benicio del Toro's Bugs Bunny. Well, that's why she's. That's why it's a movie about her coming of age, and it's. I mean, and, and you know, in order to go to his own of doing revenge, it's not about any other grand scheme. And right, come, it's, it's soapboxy compared to Zero Dark Thirty. And come to yeah, think of it, come to think of it, Dingus, I absolutely agree with you in that. I, I, even though I, who knows what the movie intended? I mean, I know what I took away from it. I do kind of feel like you that it's Emily Blunt learning that her idealism is ineffectual, uh, and if, literally, and. I, and I am willing to call that coming of age. You know, I, I think coming of age is, is, a, is a fine way to put it. Um, so I guess I agree with you. And here's, the, I think, the brilliance of the movie. What, what could have been just a, a genre movie, you know, something like Traffic, it's like, hey, look at how crazy the drug trade is, right. um, forces you to sort of examine how you feel about this. And that's what Zero Dark Thirty did so well. Uh, and regardless of what I think Denis Villeneuve felt or what Taylor Sheridan's script is trying to do, I loved that this movie, which is basically a thriller, really called to the forefront, you know, what do I believe about this? How do I feel about this? Right, right. Um, and that's part of what's so brilliant about it. Uh, yeah. You know, I never felt that way watching Traffic. Traffic is like, oh, yeah. these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Oh, these are the poor family people. Here's the person who's compromised his morals, whatever. Watching uh, Sicario, I was thinking about myself afterwards just as much as the events of the movie, mm. uh, and I love that about it. I, I love whether that's the script, whether that's uh, Denis Villeneuve, whoever is responsible for that. Uh, it, it, that's part of the movie's brilliance, and I, I so adore that about this movie. But there's also some bravura, just plain old filmmaking. Yeah. There's just some great scenes. Let's I mean, talk about beyond, some of that. Yeah, beyond the, the, the ideals that we're talking about, there's just some really beautiful scenes and beautiful ways of shooting stuff that we just have to talk about. What, what grabbed you, Dingus? What were some of those? 
All right. Well, first of all, I'm going to talk about something that Kelly Wand brought, uh, made fun of early on, and this is just a small thing, but all the barfing at the beginning, I, I fucking love that. Yeah. Because it's not just the the rookie uh, can't handle it in barfs. It's not just the woman can't handle it she in barfs. She doesn't barf. Ev- you know, she's retching, she she's retching out she- there in the foreground, but guys are retching in the background, <clears throat> and then her partner comes out and retches afterward, and, and we find out like right before he does that, it's, it's not just those two people, it's 20, however many more are in there. Because I'm wondering, why are all these FBI and SWAT guys, these guys are totally hard-ass dudes, including her, who's an FBI dude. I mean, why are they all barfing? And then you understand, they none of them can handle it. I mean, they, they, they're they retching all the time. And, and that little touch is beautiful. I fucking love that. And then the next thing I loved was that suburban thing, which looked like a train. That whole suburban thing going the into SUVs, Mexico. SUVs, I mean, yeah. Yeah, the suburban you know SUVs going into Mexico. What that, I, that thing was just amazing filmmaking. You say it looked like a train. What I thought of, uh, way back when in Capricorn 1, they had these cool black helicopters, and they did these silly things, where the, which I, as a kid I thought was cool, where the helicopters kind of had personality, and they would look at each other and then chase down the <laughs> yeah. astronauts. Uh, and they were kind of like dragonflies. What I thought about this SUV train is it looked like a snake. Like the way it was, it was sort of weaving among traffic uh, and, and crawling, like moving through the, the houses and the streets. There was just this sense of this like dark black ominous snake. And uh, even when the motorcade surrounds it, it, they're still, yeah. it still has its own identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the motorcade is trying to sort of keep up with it and move around it. And uh, yeah, that, that, by the way, Bravura filmmaking is a perfect way for it. Thing is that whole – it wasn't really a chase scene, but, but no. that whole sequence of – and partly, too, because one of the things I love about what the movie does, uh, there is so much dread and uncertainty in the early parts of the movie. You know, I love going into that FBI raid. Uh, what was that stupid movie with Schwarzenegger where they're all double-crossing each other and getting murdered? Oh, Sabotage? Yeah, 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 Sabotage. So normally when you do an FBI raid, it's this hoorah, let's go in and kick some ass vibe. Uh, this was a raid, you know, there was a sense of dread going into this. Uh, and as Emily Blunt is getting sucked into whatever this is and isn't quite understanding it, that dread is definitely ratcheting up. Yeah. Uh, but it's also keeping us in the dark in terms of uncertainty. We don't know what's going on. She doesn't know yeah. what's going on. We don't know so, it's a hostage rescue till after. Yeah, and in the midst of that dread <clears throat> and confusion, this awesome kinetic chase scene of, of moving through – uh, uh, what town was that? Juarez. Juarez, yeah. Moving through Juarez and, and seeing the different players, you know, that, like that state police spider car on the other road, yeah, those, those yeah. federale, uh, motorcade coming up. Um, and for that to then end, to just come to this sudden static end, by the way, was just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that whole bit I loved. And Another I'm, one, what? Oh, go ahead. I just want to say I love the, the way you brought her up as part of that building tension because the the way she conveys this this utter fear while trying to have this steely resolve but she's yeah. in an unknown situation and she's totally afraid and the way that's set against what he says at the end when you're afraid you look like a little girl which is not at all what she looks like at the beginning she doesn't look like a little girl she looks like somebody trying so hard to understand what the fuck is going on i love the way that those two things set up against each other and how that sets up exactly what you said tom the tension in and dread dread is a perfect word for that whole scene until they get to that point where all of them pile out of the car and then go into that dark 
warehouse. Well, that too, by the way, is what characterizes them. And I think those those are two adjectives that would be hugely important in enemy. Like enemy is yeah. just full of this sense of dread and, and eh, some uncertainty, but mainly dread. Um, uh, Kelly Wan, what's something in the filmmaking that stood out for you? Um, I really like the movie in general, by the way, I should point out. I think you, you both freaked me out, actually, Sorry. when you were talking about what it was about in different ways. But, like, I think it's a great movie, and, like, the acting's amazing, and I, I really enjoyed watching Like, it has a way more – like, during Enemy and Prisoners, like, Enemy 2, I didn't feel, like, as wrapped as I was while I was watching this. Like, I was really invested in her character and, like, scene by scene, and it, it, there's not really any, like, dead spots. Um, but my the first time where I was, like – I got really excited was when they – parked and all the guys it was like the first time tell toro's character really stirs to life because he's been kind of snoozing and not really saying anything for the whole movie and then he's like that car that car and then they all get out and then and then it still takes a long time it's like 10 minutes of shootout after that like before even any oh you're talking about in the traffic traffic jam yeah i love that part right yeah that part's amazing by the way i never understand it in movies it constantly happens (laughs) what kind of gangster or or henchmen, you know, there are all of these guys with automatic weapons trained on him, and he's holding a yeah. pistol. Don't you? Do, I mean, who doesn't just drop the pistol at that moment? Uh, you know, and he raises it and gets shot. And I'm, I'm not complaining, but like, because he's calculating his other options. Like, if, if I get caught, I get interrogated. You no, know well, I want I, actually very good point. Very good point. Is it probably points more? It might be better off to die. It, it, it points the, more, that's the reason they hang people from bridges. It points more to the hopelessness of that guy's situation yeah. than any sort of uh, bravery or foolishness. Absolutely. It's Captain Phillips. Yeah. Right. Um, I, is the rubber band thing dumb? And is the Shane thing – because that to me was like – I really liked how it was shot. What is and the I Shane really thing? I don't know what that means. Oh, so, so Dingus uh, – John Bernthal, is that his name? Bernthal? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a, a major character in, in the, the Walking Dead, so I think a lot of people who see this movie uh, will recognize him from The Walking Dead, which you didn't watch. Oh, uh, the, the the supposed hot dude in the bar. The, the yeah, Phoenix, yeah, the Phoenix cop is uh, <coughs> is uh, yeah. Oh, His name right. is Shane in The Walking Dead, so that's Kelly's reference. Yeah. Okay. And he's a redneck on that. And kind So of- was the rubber band bit dumb? Uh, so here's an example, too, by the way, <coughs> where I, I I don't know about dumb, but it's, it's a little con- convenient script. It's one of the examples where I would say this script isn't that great. But, right. I, you know, I kind of wish that we – so when we first see it, it's how to focus on the on the table. And I think yeah. everyone notices it, notices it at that point. And I kind of wish – that he hadn't then showed us it in focus, you know, a POV shot from Emily Blunt. Uh, yeah. I think he should have trusted everyone at that point in the in the audience to get that, hey, this is the same rubber band. Um, so I didn't mind it. Uh, but we all, uh, we all knew he was the bad guy from the moment he turned to look at her. I mean, and I mean again, we see that Benicio del Toro is following her from the moment they drive off. In the, and then he assumed yeah, the black dude was in on it. <laughs> that was my takeaway. Like he when the guy looks it. back at her from the bar and meets her, you know he's the bad guy. I mean, you know that. I don't even know that guy from Walking Dead, and I know he's the bad guy. So I think you guys are right. That rubber band is a little much. But I didn't. I'm okay with that. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm. I'm fine. It's shorthand for us. Yeah. I liked her reaction too. Like, good came of that scene. Um, and also, she we that scene's necessary because she has to owe Del Toro. Like he saves her from strangling, and then later he has a gun to her fucking chin. So it's like. So let me ask you guys, uh, Kelly, one, you 
you even referenced this. I, uh, I sort of didn't like, I, I felt in Edge of Tomorrow that Emily Blunt's character, who was supposed to be super badass, was kind of sidelined right. next to Tom Cruise. You guys disagree with me, that's cool. Uh, how did you feel about, uh, whether or not she was like too helpless or had to be rescued? Uh, did you have any reservations about that in this movie? Uh, Talk about that some. Uh, Kelly Wan, you go, you go first. Uh, did, did you feel that it did justice to her as a female character or that there was any sort of convenient, helpless damsel in distress stuff that bothered you? It all did except for the rubber band thing only because it also it, – it's not just – not only does she have to get rescued by Javier Bardem and her guns out of reach, but like – it's because she's horn like she hasn't had sex in a while too. Like she's fooled by a pretty face, okay, or a supposedly pretty face too. So it's like kind of a trifecta of like fucking over the chick character. And were you okay with that, or did you kind of feel it was dumb, like the rubber band? Or <sighs> I, if I set that part aside, I actually think I really, really like how her character evolves. And I think she's. I mean, maybe I misheard a line or something, but I thought she was like a real. She was a proven veteran, and that's why they didn't want the black dude too, because he was green, even though he'd been to Iraq. But they had more. They all sold her as like, oh yeah, this. this uh, I just want to just a real quick note. They didn't want the black dude because uh, uh, Josh Brolin says no lawyers because right. I think he knew oh. that the black dude who does eventually reveal it would know he was just there as a formality. Right. Um, so thing is, real quick then okay. about this issue of Emily Blunt's character. Uh, how did you feel about her, her portrayal in some of those situations and maybe needing to be rescued? Did that ever bother you? No, no, because I, I don't see her as. I don't see the female character thing as being a thing anymore. I, th- I mean, I would think it being like Vasquez is a rookie. Um, I think she's a badass as far as she is as experience. But my quibble would be with the way they do her makeup in it. I think it's a little heavy, especially when he's like making fun of the way she looks later on. But he's talking about her as if he's her mom and he's trying to get her like hooked up or taken care of like he would a buddy. I, I honestly don't think the movie messes around with her as being a woman. I don't think there's any. I don't think that. I don't think the movie fucks around with that at all. Which is uh, kind of why it reminds me also of Zero Dark Thirty is they right. didn't make a lot of right, Jessica right. Chastain being a woman. Uh, and here's also a, an important point. Uh, I really love what you said, Kelly Wand, is that uh, John Bernthal's character takes advantage of of. The fact that she's supposedly lonely and hasn't been in a relationship, and as you put it, is is horny. Like I love that a female character right. can can have you know normally it's a dude who gets seduced by the hot right. chick assassin, and we're like yeah well, we understand that's totally cool. Uh, I I really love that she basically <laughs> says I I tried to have sex with my assassin. Yeah, uh, and I, I love that it acknowledged that. You know, as a woman, she can be as sexually frustrated or as sexually vulnerable as any guy to a femme fatale. Uh, and I also feel, uh, Kelly Wan, you said it sort of serves a dramatic purpose where she has to owe Benicio del Toro's character when he rescues her. Uh, I feel it's important that she, she is never helpless and she is always basically doing the right thing. When, when she goes for her gun and she gets it, there's not this sense that he just knocks her over. I mean, she's fighting back and trying to do moves. There's a sense that she's competent, but she just gets overpowered uh, physically. Yeah. Um, and I didn't feel like there was any sense of, of helplessness, for instance. No, yeah, she's a good shot. And 
She's and she's a professional. Like she exactly like that, like she, she didn't suddenly become a vulnerable, scared woman who needed right. to be rescued. Right. She was still very competent as, as a police or as a, as, a, as an agent. Yeah, uh, she is like Ned Stark. But <laughs> they're, also, they're also not playing with the whole boys' club thing. They're just not doing that. That's not going on with her. Even right. though she's the only woman in the room, they're not doing the whole boys' club thing. And that too. That I love things that you point out. Uh, you know, they're trying to set up the partner as like a mother thing, but it is. It's like a buddy's going to set her up. Uh, and and I, the fact that even though I think we as the audience are sitting there looking at Emily Blunt and thinking she's a very, very hot actress, uh, right. you know, they're trying to do the thing where she's just walking around in her bra and her partner doesn't care. Uh, yeah. And I'm fine with that. Like, I, I liked that they tried to – They're cops. Play. But when, when he says to her – and this happens all the time in movies. When he says to her, you look like shit, she does not yeah. look like shit. She, looks she does not. Right. They're no. trying to sell her in a boring T-shirt, uh, you know, a boring bra, and they're making a comment about her eyebrows. You know, I get that's in the script, but, but no, I'm not buying that. No, I, she never looks like a little girl either. And when well, Del Toro goes, oh, you remind me of my daughter, like she doesn't she just look daughterly. Well, I think that's a great payoff, though, for – Two reasons. It's that that weird sequence right after he saves her, where he's like talking to her in the bathroom. And he's like, "You remind me of something who's very special to me." And there's almost like, "Is this going to get sexual?" And then it doesn't. And you get the feeling that it isn't supposed to. Uh, but it, it's just this. I, I don't. I think the movie isn't going for that. I think it it works against itself when you see her makeup when she's riding down the road in the suburbans. Yeah. It's perfect makeup with perfect perfect lips, lipstick and her eyebrows are perfect so tom's absolutely right when they're when he's looking at her and saying your eyebrows are a mess and you're wearing the same t-shirt or so are you dude you've been wearing the same t-shirt for days too even her in the early uh uh fbi raid on the on the channel yeah. arizona house uh when she's in the helmet i was kind of thinking is that does she have immaculate lipstick on is that what i'm seeing here uh well at first i thought they were trying to make her look like a mexican girl um in the very first shot uh, but obviously, Jesus. I know. It's just All right, let, let's talk. What did you guys feel about the Silvio uh, subplot? You know, the fact that we see the uh, the Nogales cop, and uh, oh. in, in, when it cuts to the scene with him and his son, and he's eventually folded into the plot. Uh, and how did you guys feel about about that choice? Cliche, but okay. well acted. Dingus, that's me. I like the idea that it's feathered in. I like the idea that I'm wondering, who is this guy? How's it all going to um, tie it? And, I, and, you know, it doesn't take a great deal of time, but I like the fact that it gives us a sense of, oh, this is one of those nameless hick sheriffs that we would see in, like, something going on in the South, or this is one of those Mexican state police officers that we've told to be aware of, that it humanizes. I mean, I, I kind of liked it. He winds up not being very relevant, though, considering how much setup there is. Well, it, it shows the human angle of what's going on in Mexico as well as what's going on here. Right, and and whereas mm -hmm. traffic is a whole, more. whereas traffic is a whole movie that wants to give all of these players equal weight. One of the things I really like here is how it narratively does these little sort of shifts and jukes. Um, yeah. And and it does that too, where when the movie ends up, Dingus, you said it was a revenge movie, and it clearly is. It ends up. Focusing on Benicio del Toro's character for for the payoff, kind of, yeah. and that's an odd shift, just like yes. the shift to suddenly look at the, this 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 family man in Nogales that we don't know how he's going to figure into the action. Uh, and by the way, 
how it, it, it just literally leaves him on the side of the road. Yep. Uh, and that uh, and, and it ends, by the way, with this, you know, a, a little boy without a dad playing soccer and still hearing yeah. the same gunfire. Um, and now the mother has to take him to the soccer games, as she does most days. Yeah, so I, uh, I it was an odd choice, but uh, I, uh, provocative and thoughtful. I thought. And also they, they cast a guy who was really, I think, perfect. Yeah. I don't know the actor's yeah. name, and I apologize for not knowing that, but that guy really, he got it. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Very convincing. And also that weird first shot of his fingers. Was that nicotine or was that blood? What was that? That, uh, I think, I mean, it's, so, I think because Prisoners was so successful, uh, the the money behind this movie, uh, and I'm not, I'm not uh, acquainted with the production history of it, but they let uh, Denis Villeneuve do whatever he wanted. They let him keep in these gratuitous arty shots of motes of dust in front of curtains. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, we were introduced to that cop by a close-up of his fingers. Uh, you know, that, that, that like Dingus, you mentioned the, the drain shot when these the guys being waterboarded. He got to do all kinds of weird arty things in this that made this, this weird moody thriller that uh, I think a lot of well, I can just imagine some people going to see this based on the trailer. And by the way, I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer, but the trailer sells it as like a cool action thriller thing. Yes. And I could see people going to see this wondering what, you know, well, what are these shots? What What's going on here? Uh, and I love that about it. I don't know why it opens yeah. on a shot of his fingers, but uh, I, okay. right. I love that they let uh, – that Dennis Villeneuve did that kind of moody stuff uh, that was that was hugely valuable to me. It's also an it's it's an arty kind of pessimistic movie. I mean, it's it's apparently doing really well, or that's what I think I read. Um, well, I was so shocked like that that our local little theater was showing it today. I mean, I got to see it at nine a.m. on a Sunday morning. I mean, what the heck? It's at it's at our local little theater, so hopefully it's doing well enough to do that. And Tom said he saw it in a packed theater. I think. Yeah, I mean, it made you know. There's no names in it really, and it, it's made. I mean, I, I think – I can't imagine it was that expensive, but, uh, but I think uh, – Lionsgate? I think Lionsgate will be very happy with how it does. Yeah. Oh, good. I hope so. All right. Uh, so, Tom, all... you've already mentioned your over, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, my over would be uh, Zero Dark Thirty, uh, and these are by a smidge. Like I loved this movie. Uh, I, I sort of a little bit prefer Zero Dark Thirty as far as its theme of us – not compromising our ideals, but, but us basically as a country – buying into revenge uh and i loved that this movie is also although i'm not sure it was intended our country allowing our ideals about sovereignty uh and who we ally with to be compromised by the chaos in mexico uh and our helplessness you know donald trump should see this movie by the way anybody who thinks yeah we're just gonna build a wall oh We'll just deport these people. Oh, yeah, I, you, you got to love that long shot of the wall. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just as, as far as a, a movie about the hopelessness of the situation, the chaos of the situation on our southern border um, and with the drug trade, uh, I would just put it a little bit under Zero Dark Thirty. Right. It's like putting a condom over your leg and not bothering with your dick. <laughs> Was that a line from the movie or is that a dingusism? That's a dingusism. Jesus. Wow. Wow. Uh, and my under, and, and yes, Kelly, Warren, Kelly Warren, you might be very upset with this, uh, which is, again, a movie that I love, 
And it's not about someone's ideals being compromised so much as someone becoming uh, too obsessed with preventing a certain drug trade. But my under, I put this movie above French Connection. Whoa. Whoa. Which I love. I love French Connection. It's a brilliant William Friedkin movie. Uh, but I like this better. Like the, uh. the filmmaking in this is just so moody. Like French Connection, very 70s filmmaking, dated in some ways, uh, a great Hackman performance. Just overall. Chase. Overall. Yeah, the car chase is overrated. It's great. Overrated. They're far better. Uh, but uh, I, I would put this above French Connection. And that, that says more about how much I love this movie then I'm not trying to diss French Connection in any way. I'm so very, you like the Frenchman's Mexico movie more than the Irishman's? I'm very closely bracketing, so in, in, in my over-under. Uh, so, Dingus, what did you do with your over-under? All right, for my under, I chose, um, again, I just went with revenge movies because I think that this is, its very essence is a revenge movie, and that's one of the things I loved about it. Um, because I've heard so much talk about traffic, traffic, drug war, drug war. And I think that what sneaks in is that it's a, a movie about a guy who's using all of these elements to take revenge. So uh, my under, just barely, and, and these are pretty closely bracketed, my under would be John Wick, which is a movie I absolutely love. Um, <laughs> But is a movie that is is absolutely about revenge. Um, it, it, I was kind of trying to think of movies where somebody really orchestrates revenge in various ways, and all these like clock wheels turn in order to, for everything to click into place. But uh, given that there's just a couple of moments in this movie in Sicario where I just at the action I just had to go whoa whoa oh, and there's a lot more of that in John Wick. But I don't think John Wick is as it exquisitely structured as this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over, I would put, and this is a little bit higher. This isn't as closely bracketed, but it is. And it's funny that Kelly Wan kept messing around with Benicio Del Toro's name, but over, I would put Skyfall, because I, say, I think Skyfall is essentially a movie about revenge. Sure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Kelly Wan, before we get to your over-under, I actually wanted to ask you guys a minute. Uh, how did... Okay, what's the deal with Benicio del Toro killing the wife and children? How did you feel about that? Why did you think it had to happen? Did it have to happen? How did you feel about it? Uh, Kelly Wan, you go first. Uh, I loved it. It did have to happen because that guy had to see it happen, the mm-hmm. guy he was going to shoot, because uh, he did it to his family. And it also – we there's close-ups of the kids and the wife, and the way it – you, you kind of go, oh, he's not going to shoot them. And he doesn't allude to shooting them either. So when mm-hmm. he does it, it's very uh, perfunctory, which I thought um, – I thought enhanced it a lot. I was bummed, kind of bummed because I read something right before I saw the movie where it said, they're considering making a sequel with Del Toro's character. I went, fuck, that's even worse than a trailer. <laughs> like, ouch. I know. So it's when I watched that scene, I was it was sort of maybe a little more devoid of tension than if I hadn't read that. Sure. So I sort of tended that I hadn't read that. But like, I thought that was a really bold, cool choice and very in character and the perfect ending. And exactly what – you know, Emily Blunt wouldn't have been able to stomach like she would not like that's what she's now signed off on. And that's in the scene right after that. So it's it's a very necessary thing. Like if he just kills the drug lord, Emily Blunt's not compromising as much. But now she's signing off on, you know, families getting shot. So Dingus, I'm specifically interested in how did you feel about that? What, what did uh, what did that do to you watching it? And how did it make you feel about his character, the, the, the act of revenge? What What did that do for you? Uh, it was it was devastating to me, but it's absolutely necessary, uh, and uh, and I think a lesser movie would have backed off from that. 
Yes. Um, I was impressed that it did it. Uh, I was uh, relieved that it didn't show him doing it. Uh, and then I was, um, as a movie critic, um, pleased in an, if you'll excuse the tone of that word, that they actually showed us the bodies afterward. Um, I think that absolutely plays into what he is doing. He's, he is taking revenge on this man. He's not going to torture him, but he's going to take everything away from this man in that way that that man took everything away from him. And, and this is his moment where that man has to go to God. And, and he's, the man's like, don't do this in front of my sons. The man thinks you'll either shoot me in front right. of my sons or you won't. And instead, he does do. the opposite of what that man suggests. And that's when the horror enters the man's eyes. What, the more uh, what I would have expected you to ask is, should he have done the gone the full No Country for Old Men and gone ahead and taken out Emily Blunt after she signed the letter? No, because yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the, she he says it will be your suicide because it's her gun that he's holding, right? And she would have shot herself after signing that letter. So. Should she have been killed as well, that would have been the most brutal ending. But as far as that's concerned, uh, it, it it really yeah, hurts to see it as a dad. But but I think it works as a movie. Do you not? Uh, do you agree, Tom? Yeah, yeah. For, first of all, I don't I don't think that her being killed was ever on the table. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's a movie about her losing her ideals, not her life. And and I right. I was at some point wondering, oh, is is uh. Is her partner going to get shot? Is that black guy going to get killed? And that's going to like galvanize her. Like I, I wondered if the movie was going to go there. I'm delighted it didn't. Um, yeah. Well, I was yeah, afraid he was going to turn out to be one of the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would have even been worse. Um, yeah, because he's Shane's buddy. But what what uh, what struck me about that scene where he does kill the wife and children is I think the movie, and this again is something that I really respect it for making me examine this in myself. The movie at that point really tempers that for us by letting us get in on his sense of revenge. I mean, in a weird way, we understand and maybe even want him to do that, even if we don't anticipate it. Yeah, that's disturbing. You're right. It's very disturbing. And again, it's why I think of Zero Dark Thirty is even if you feel that, uh, you know, killing uh, Osama bin Laden didn't have any strategic purpose, uh, you know, some people think that it was just a revenge killing. Uh, you kind of have to examine how did you feel about the fact that we went and killed this old man, even though it didn't really do anything. He wasn't wielding any power anymore. Uh, so I think this movie similarly has us approving of the murder of two innocent children and an innocent woman. I say innocent in part. Well, like, she's not innocent. We don't know. I mean, it, it, we regardless of whether she is, I mean, it has us approving of in a weird way. <laughs> The, the shooting of, in, in cold blood of these two children, right, and right. it's it's very disturbing, but it 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 lets us in on this sense of revenge, which frankly these days is not terribly unlike justice for us. Uh, yeah. and exactly, I, as far as balancing scales is concerned, right? It, it, it's like the literal sense, and I think that the movie wants us to consider that, and I, I certainly did. Uh, you know. Why is it that I kind of am like, yeah, do that? Like, I, and then afterwards thinking, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be saying that. that's terrible. Yeah. Um, no, but you're being that character, and that character should and exactly. Would do that. But but the thing, exactly right. Um, and, and he's also so good at that scene. What's amazing too is yeah. that this character has not been the perspective of the audience for ninety percent of the movie, and right. that it shifts us into his perspective. 
is 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 brave, effective, and un, uh, unexpected. Um, all right, so Kelly Wand, uh, give me your uh, over and under for Sicario. And what I learned about relationships, you mean? I, if you Is learned it? anything about it, yeah, throw that in as well if you got anything. From Sicario? Uh, my over, these are a lot of weird ones for all of us, I guess. I didn't think I'd hear John Wick and the French Connection, either one of them. But my over is... The theme of my over-under is it's Mexico, what are you going to do, movies? So my over <laughs> of that, uh, which I know you guys are going to hate me for. It seems like every year when I, I always regret the uh, my favorite movie of the year, except for King's Speech. But like part of me wishes I'd gone with Whiplash last year. But for my over, uh, I picked The Counselor, which I think is underrated. The Cormac McCarthy, Ridley Scott team up. Our two favorite artists. You and I both loved that, yeah. Or like, oh, really? I, you loved I, it? I couldn't remember what. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember what you thought of it. I, I think oh. yeah, like it, it was certainly flawed but interesting, and I, I was fascinated. I quite liked it, yeah. And it makes the same point, and I think it makes it a little more artfully. I think. Um, I don't know. There's just more dispassion. I think. Well, there were certainly no jaguars in this movie. No, um, <laughs> and there is there is a female assassin in it as opposed to Shade. Yeah, there's less uh, gynecology. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, less references to catfish, right? Well, we put a condom on your leg. It's different. <laughs> um, but my under is uh, Turistas. Ew. Yeah, that's my least favorite movie about the perils of Mexico. Mm-hmm. But Tom, as far as relationships go, um, I'll always suck on a blunt. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty double three, I'm calling between. You're calling a Watson, what you're doing. Did you recognize the name of the composer of the music, uh, Johan Johansson? Uh, you know, I really, I really freaking love the music of this. And, um, yeah. I, I started to actually think that it was this the, the same guy and uh, something Alex Anderson means is this the same guy who did anime but uh, other it's than not, no no it's it's certainly not um, but no I had to actually look him up I I didn't recognize him straight out uh, he's an Icelandic musician who I think we first were exposed to when he did the music for the trailer uh, when he did the music for the trailer of Battle LA Oh my god! Yeah, that weird sort of. Uh, that was an awesome trailer. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know how you describe the music, but like it was this. this kind of sedate, mesmerizing song about this guy's gone black, the sun is gray. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so that was Johan Johansson as well. As soon as you said that, I hear it in my head. So well done. Yeah, I, I had no idea. I wanted to know what he was from and who did the poster. But uh, but he you know I didn't see theory of everything and I didn't see um, prisoners so I don't know. I also wonder if, uh, if this movie is why Roger Deakins didn't do the next James Bond movie. Huh? Because he was doing this, which I'm fine with if that's the yeah. Case. He certainly man, goddamn some of those overhead shots. Yeah. It, it yeah. looked like you know well anyway looked like Mars. But, All yeah. right, Dingus, what is this week's three by three? What do you got? This, this week, this week's three by three is favorite title cards. Those those cards that you are <laughs> like in the in you know what the game, the example I gave is in watching Casino. There's a, a card that flashes up in the middle of the movie that says 
back home and or back east or whatever instead of showing like an actual location or uh day one or sol four forty four forty nine or sol one twenty five the those title cards that flash up in a movie to mark something that's going on so these are your favorite title cards not your favorite like showing the movie title that flashes down you did specify that it's not supposed to be the title of the movie right right kelly wand three by three cops are on patrol don't get pulled over what is your number Uh, number three pick for your favorite title card all right i picked ones i like but i don't know if i can articulate very well why i like them because they're just text and you know i don't know why things hit me the way they do but my number three is in escape from new york at the beginning there's like a verbal voiceover narration going, yeah, 1987, blah, blah, blah. Isn't that Adrian Barbeau doing it as well? Oh, is it? I believe it's Adrian so, Barbeau. So She's in it. But she was married to John Carpenter. <clears throat> I thought she did the voiceover. I could be wrong. Wait, is she supposed to be in character doing when she's doing I the don't voiceover? Think so. John, I think John Carpenter just thought, hey, my wife's got an awesome voice. I'll have her read this. I, you know what? I could be wrong. So, anyway, carry on. So there's the voiceover that lays out the situation. Manhattan's been turned into a maximum security prison. Go ahead. And then uh, at the end of it, uh-huh. like she stops talking and then the the year comes up and it just says 1997. So and then like there's like this long beat and then the word now comes up like in capitals. <laughs> For some reason, I love that now. Like it's so strident. It's like, all right, bitches, all that. You, fuck, that was just Adrian Barbo talking. Now's happening. And so wherever you think you are, it's this 1997. But so, I don't think I've ever seen another movie where it's like, it's, oh, 400 hours now. So if like, you were to I watch, just... <laughs> if you were to watch Escape from New York, you would be like, well, wait, what about the last twenty years? What? Uh, why nineteen ninety seven? And how do we get to twenty fifteen? What? Yeah, what happens now? Yeah. And I go, oh, okay, it's like right. I yeah. And then that that obviously is what time it is. Actually, that's what a clock should say is, or your watch it should just say now, because that's <laughs> always be right. Well, I kind of like that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. unlike, unlike what is what is the Blade Runner take place in Los Angeles twenty. 25 yeah whatever it is that whenever that like the futuristic movie said the date was supposed to be we're like where are flying cars so i like the word yeah yeah exactly and then 2001 why isn't pan am taking uh shuttles to the moon right (laughs) very good yeah because it's not now my third favorite title card and i think it's i don't know if this is allowed uh I think the word I was looking for before when I incorrectly called something an epitaph, it's, it's, I think it's called an epigraph when you open with a quote. Uh, it is yeah. a, a title card in that I, it's not really – okay, so what I love about this one, it's not telling you where or when. That's clear from what the movie is about, but it's telling you basically why, and that is the quote uh, from uh, I think a New York Times correspondent. I forget – Craig Herbert? I forget his name, uh, but he wrote in a book – the rush of battle is potent is a potent and often lethal addiction for war is a drug. And that's ah. the why that opens Hurt Locker. It's not the when, it's not the where. We know it's Iraq. Uh, but the why of it, you, you see this before you've seen the movie Hurt Locker, which is about to portray, uh, you know, it's Catherine Bigelow. She made point break about these guys addicted to extreme sports and adrenaline. Basically, Hurt Locker is that same thing. But in in the uh, war in Iraq, uh, and and not nearly as glib. 
Uh, so I love that it opens with that quote that basically prepares us for the why of Hurt Locker. Things is that allowed? Am I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are epigraphs so the epigraphs are on the table? Police officers. Sure. Okay. It's a, it's a title card. Like so, a title card is literally yeah. something that is. Uh, that is because uh, I actually looked this up on Wikipedia because I it, I didn't know if I was going to get pulled over and so I needed some sort of definition I needed a defense in case I had to explain to the cop. It seems like uh, typographs should just be their own category though. Maybe. Like, well, just, a title just, card is is just literally it's an interstitial. Uh, it, it it sort of was originally it referred to the text in silent movies, um, yeah. and then when we got sound and it was actually an Academy Award it was only issued once because sound came in uh, for title cards. Uh, so uh, this was originally something from silent movies, and then when we got sound in movies, we didn't need to hear – you know, we could hear what was being said, so we didn't need to read that. But there were still some things that we got to read. Uh, so, sonar's the underwater one, right? What? That's – That's telemetry. Okay, right. what were you saying? Uh, Dingus, what is your third favorite title card? <laughs> All right, my third favorite title card uh, is preceded by this quote. Well, he knows a little about me. I told him my first name and where I was from. Three amigos? <laughs> Stop at guessing that for everything. Uh, I don't I don't know. Officer? No, this is from uh, the movie. Uh, well, the, the title card is Mr. White. Oh. Uh, okay, so this is from Reservoir Dogs. And... Uh, uh, this is uh, there's there's three really great title cards in this movie, and the way they are played out is is really quite beautiful. Um, but the Mister White title card comes um, after the scene with with uh, uh, Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi, where uh, finally Harvey Keitel reveals to Steve Buscemi, you know, he's telling him, well, "Let's take him to the hospital." And Steve Buscemi's character is like, "Yeah, let's take him to the hospital. That's fine." Does he know anything about you? Well, he knows a little about me. I told him my first name and where I was from. And Steve Buscemi's like, "What?" And shortly thereafter, we go to Joe's office, uh, where Joe is 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 pitching the job to Harvey Keitel's character. And then that's the first time I think that we see the name of one of these guys. And I like the way that Quentin Tarantino lays in Mr. White and then later on lays in Mr. Blonde and then later on lays in Mr. Orange. And there's there's I love the way this movie is edited. And that's I think that title cards are most perfectly used when the editor knows what she's doing. Um but that Mr. White where that falls in and how that bounces us back into what the actual story is going on is perfect. Kelly Wan, second favorite title card. What do you got for us? Wait, why do I got to be Mr. Pink? I'm not saying it. Because you're not. Ah, you guys stink. All right, my number two is uh, a serious man. The word Marshak comes up. Oh, nice. Does that count? That's a title. Sure. I'm not pulling you over. I think there's because there are different chapters and they all have a title. And yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Movies first often, rabbi. Yeah. Second, and that one's full of title cards. It's got that quote at the beginning, and it's got credits. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of what I was going for. I like that. Yeah. Do you remember any of the other chapter names? They were all first rabbi, second rabbi, Marshak. What was? Do you remember some of the other ones, or were there other ones? Were they just doing that, that with the, the rabbis? Three. Okay. I thought it was just those three. Um. 
My second favorite title card, and I might get pulled over for this, but I feel strongly about it. It is the title of the movie, but it's also a title card, and I know everybody was thinking it, so I'm just going to say it because I picked it. But I love how in 28 Days Later, you get that opening scene, and then it's not my fault that the name of the movie is also when it takes place. There's the title card that tells you we're fast-forwarding 28 Days Later, but it's also the name of the movie. So that's – you know what? The movie could have been called something else, and it would still be cool, but it just so happens, hey, it's also the movie's name. I like it. I support you. I'm with with you. I didn't even think of that. And I think that's a great – that's a great way of sneaking in and did the title card thing. Yeah. Because uh, I think that works perfectly. Yeah, you're, you're right, Tom. That's Although, great. if we did movie it, titles... It, it kind of gives me chills thinking about it, so that's perfect. And in 28 <laughs> Weeks Later, by the way, they have that whole explanation about, you know, here's what happened, here's the NATO force, uh, here's what has, has has been done in the interim, and then it comes up 28 weeks later. Like, they, they know how cool that was, so they use it a second time. And, you know, and I have, a, I have a friend that I go to the movies with often who can't stand it when the movie title is shown later on. Uh, you know, she wants the movie title to be shown right away and not mess around with it. Uh, this movie, 28 Days Later, perfectly <laughs> messes around with that convention in a totally organic way, and I love that you brought it up. That's great. And Diggis, you're constantly like, you hate when it says something like 28 hours earlier. Right. So this yeah. is like the opposite yeah. of that. Yeah. Diggis, what is your second favorite title card? All right. My second favorite turns out also to be what uh, Tom has called an epigraph, which I didn't know what it was called. Uh, and it's from the movie Enemy. And it's what kind of gave oh, me a little more insight it, Dingus. Into, um, into this movie Sakari that we just watched. And that is Chaos is Order Yet Undeciphered. And um, I think the way that this movie constantly references chaos and is talking about control at the same time uh, and the way he's talking about that in the in while he's while he's in his professor mode, talking about chaos versus control as far as city states are concerned. I love that opening thing. Uh, chaos is order yet undeciphered from enemy. See how topical he was, Kelly Wand. Yeah. All right, Kelly, what's you? What is your favorite title card? I like the book at the beginning of uh, Royal Tannenbaums because I feel like it's orienting. Does that count as a title card? Dangerous, I think what's your feeling as the as the uh, well, we've used it as a framing device, but uh, uh, but I guess I'll allow it. That's fine. All right. <sighs> my favorite uh, title. My favorite title card actually. Uh, so as a guy who watches a lot of crappy horror movies and is really into horror as a genre, this title card was the beginning of an entire genre of horror movies that are often reviled, but back then they weren't. Uh, and here's the title card. In October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods in Brooksville, <laughs> Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. This is the title card, and, and their footage was found. That's the name of the genre, found footage. This is the title card before Blair Witch Project. Um, and uh, it it just sets up this, you know, rather than saying based on a true story, it's going one step further and saying this footage is what actually was shot. You know, this is a documentary, basically. Uh, and I love how that sets up. And before we knew what found footage was, I mean, there were other kind of found footage predecessors, but this was the birth of it as a genre. You know, there would be literally hundreds of imitators afterwards, most of which would suck. Uh, 
But I love how this title card heralded a, a new way to show horror movies. And by the way, here's another one in that same category. Uh, you know, maybe this will come up in a runner-up. I'm sorry if I'm scooping anyone. But here's another one that I love in the same category. This one was shown at the end of the movie, and it is Paramount Pictures would like to thank the families of Mika Slope and Katie <laughs> Featherstone and the San Diego Police Department. Because I love how at Paranormal Activity at the end, they also throw in to make it sound super official, the San Diego Police Department. Yeah. Uh, right. The movie studios thanking them for making for allowing <laughs> for allowing them to use <laughs> to the footage that was yeah. obviously brought into the evidence room. Right. Exactly. To market it as a horror movie. <laughs> right. Wait, I just thought of a better one. Can I change why? You cannot. I have no. you down for Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, a cute little adorable book that, that they page through. What I love is that when Tom started saying, here's another horror movie with Don footage that I really love that has a title card, I thought, well, I might as well tune out for this. And I was like, oh, I know what this one is. I know what he's talking See? about. Yep, yep. Dingus, you're on board. All right, Dingus, your favorite title card. What do you got? All right. You guys both, uh, you know, when Kelly referenced A Serious Man, uh, Tom said something about, I think maybe both of you talked about the fact that uh, directors can use those as chapters, basically, right? Um, So this is uh, my favorite instance of this director doing this, and he does this a lot of times. This is my favorite, and this is Woody Allen, and he's doing it in the movie Hannah and Her Sisters. And my favorite instance is... Uh, because he basically breaks this movie up into chapters using title cards. Um, you know, there's the, uh, the, the, gosh, I can't, I can't remember the actual, but it's like the anxiety of the man in the booth, that kind of thing. But my favorite one is, is the standard, uh, nobody, not even the rain has such small hands, or has such small hands. Um, and I love that little bit because obviously I love that poem dearly, but basically I love it because of this movie. And I didn't know about this poem until I saw that title card and I was like, what does that even mean? And then the scene explains it, which is kind of a cool way to title a chapter and then explain what that title means. And then if you watch that chapter, and gosh, watching Hannah and her sisters is such a gratifying experience. Watching Michael Caine run around a city block just to meet up with Barbara Hershey and take her in, and like get her to get her to take him to a bookstore so he can buy her this book. Um, I love that this is a chapter title. So it's that. God, she's lovely. Isn't that the first one? Oh, yeah, it is something like that, isn't it? Yeah. All right, Diggis, what do uh, the listeners have as their favorite title cards? All right, first we have Paul Weimer. Hi, guys, sorry about missing last week. Three, this is one, this one is for you, Kelly. In Real Men, the progress of the two <laughs> protagonists toward the rendezvous with aliens in Washington, D.C. is done by means of day and place stamps as they reach various milestones on their cross-country <laughs> journey. Paul's number two is in Chronicles of Riddick. Wait, which one's he talking about, though? All of I have, them? I have no idea. I think he's just talking about them in, in you know, general. Uh, Paul's number two uh, in Chronicles of Riddick, the sci-fi style <laughs> font text giving the name and info on the latest planet that the action switches to is a nice small detail to reinforce the sci-fi nature of the movie and the universe. Yeah, I actually like that because it reminds me of Guardians of the Galaxy. So thank you, Paul. Um, number one in red. I really enjoyed <laughs> the postcard title cards. Man, I don't under, I don't remember that at all. The postcard. Red? It just says red, so I'm uh, assuming uh, it means the first one, um, yeah. starring uh, Warren Beatty, um, where the group has wound up next. 
They are deliberately kitschy and also help the viewer orient as to their travels across the country. Best regards, Paul Weimer. So, Dingus, there, so you obviously know that was Reds. There, there are two oh. movies called Red, one of which is, I think, based on a Hank Ketchum novel in which Brian Cox... Jack Ketchum. Jack Ketchum, thank you. In which Brian Cox... In which Brian Thanks. Cox's dog gets shot, and he has to basically pursue revenge. And it's called right. Red because the dog's name is Red. So it's not I only a movie with Troll. Bruce Willis as an ex-assassin or whatever that silly thing was. Or Warren Beatty. That was the uh, G.I. Joe movie, isn't it? <laughs> well, that obviously. I, I like, Dingus, that you have uh, Dwayne Johnson movies on your, on the brain. Sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, Jaime Cabrera writes, hello all. <laughs> Didn't think I was going to be able to think of any again this week, but it turned out to be more interesting than I thought. That's most, mostly what people say about me as well, Jaime. Um, number three, Castaway. I couldn't easily find the exact scene on YouTube, but I believe the title card I'm thinking of happens right after he has to perform oral surgery on himself and passes out. Uh, the yeah. screen sa- then says, four years later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. For some that. reason, I always felt like I wanted more of what happened during those four years. An option, what I think was common, but can respect the decision to make that jump. It should have cut right to his skull, his skull with the ice cream. <laughs> or just like gone on to a, a story of what happened to the tooth. Yeah, or the wife, Helen Because the tooth is the ultimate castaway, isn't it? The island's a tooth, too. It's a land tooth. <laughs> a land tooth. <laughs> Plumber man. Called. You're that clever land tooth. That's what the Navy calls the islands. <laughs> the Number two for Jaime Cabrera, Ocean's Eleven. When Tess comes out <laughs> to find Danny at the end of the movie, just as the cops are taking him away, she asks, how long will you be? He replies, three to six months. After he's driven off, the screen transitions to three to six months later. Uh, they could have had the scene I, without the title card, but I like the tongue-in-cheek humor. I hate that he used their first names for some reason. And that right up. Just like you hate you know, whenever, no, you hate it whenever I know a character name. I get it. His name is Billy. <laughs> Remember the kid from Lighthouse Down? Dingus? <laughs> no. It's not Jaime, Timmy. Jaime's number it's one Tom. pick is Zombieland. Rule number one, cardio. Oh, nice. Yeah, this is good. I absolutely love the way they use the title cards in this movie in response to any objections by the prosecution. I'm just a cop, Jaime. I'm not the prosecution. Prosecution was Alejandro. He worked as prosecution. Um, You could argue that they are not title cards during the opening sequence, but because Columbus, Jesse Eisenberg, refers to them directly, but they pop up periodically. Jesse, you don't have to make any excuses. The zombie land is perfectly crime. I know he hasn't even been pulled over, and he's trying to defend himself. Yeah, like, you, why'd you pull me over, officer? You go, blah, 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 blah. Right. Why'd you pull me over? No one pulled him over. Jamie, drive on. Next, we have Grant Stewart. Good day to you, gentlemen. Uh, my favorite intertitle, which is what these things are called, apparently, I'm going with The Sting from 1973. It's a movie about <laughs> the big con set in 1936, and the director uses a series of these really cool hand-drawn sketches to bring up the different components that are running in series during the con. Pretty sure these days an audience would be able to follow a storyline that is really not that complex. But back in 1973, I can understand that these very stylish visual cues might have helped move things along. 
Uh, next, Grant says, also, I'm super excited I got a chance to see the movie in the UK. Sicario in time for you doing the podcast. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and Grant goes on to say a bunch of cool stuff about he, how excited he is about the Sicario Opsis. Oh, uh, well, you know, it's hit and miss. <laughs> Just and, like the uh, gunshots in the movie. Um, next, we have Dave Perkins. Hey, brothers. I know there's no love for Looper amongst the sausages, but it turns out <laughs> I like Looper quite a bit. I think one of us is a champion of that movie. Uh, one of the one of my favorite sequences is the passing of 30 years in the life of the main character while he lives in Asia. The title cards that say year two and year 14 and so on. Oh, yeah, that's true. And use this awesome bold font that I felt was perfect match for the backdrops of the cards, which showed the growth and decay of the Asian city and its degrading atmosphere over 30 years. So next we have was the Looper apologist, right? Yeah, I, I love Looper. Uh, Brian Kent. Maybe, I'm not sure I got the premise of this one, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I just randomly watched this last night after a long time, and I noted an interesting title card at the beginning. One of the things that struck me during this viewing was how epic this story is. I'll always see how... Yeah. Uh, wait right. a minute. Who just randomly watches 2001? Who's like surfing around on Netflix? Uh, what see? Oh, I've never seen 2001. I'm going to watch this three hour Stanley Kubrick science fiction mindfuck movie from well, what, 1962 case. or whatever. Well, I'm sure he was watching it to get 68. ready for the music cues. I guess so. <laughs> I guess, yeah, maybe we spurred it up. Maybe it was something Kelly Wan said, but. Like if you haven't seen 2001 by now, you're probably never going to see it. Who who just is like, yeah, I'll watch this now? Well, we didn't find the monolith so forever. <laughs> so Brian says, after the title is finally shown, we get the title card, The Dawn of Man, in all caps. <sighs> it says to me, we are taking you way back, you guys, to the start of everything, like really far, dudes. Now. So Brian's other one is Troll Hunter. <laughs> Is it ah. Troll Hunter? Yeah. yeah. Wow, I don't I remember title cards. I'm curious to hear this. That one was long-winded, so here's a simple one. At the end of Troll Hunter, this card shows up, and I can't think of anything cuter. It captures the fun tone of the whole movie. Quote, It has been impossible to get the government to confirm the existence <laughs> of the Troll Security Service. Unquote. Nice. So that's from Brian Kent, parentheses, dog, unparentheses. Hmm. Uh, next we have Arthur. Jumping and jelly. Uh, number three, Independence Day. Title cards announce the dates until the film concludes on July 4th. Number two, District 9. Lots of cards are used to show who's being interviewed and how long it has been since ah. Pickus encountered the alien fluid. The use of these adds to the fake documentary elements of the movie. And finally, Arthur's number one. Calvary. Brendan Gleeson has been told that something will happen to him by a certain day. So the movie uses gorgeous title cards to mark the days of the week. I really liked The Guard and intended to see this movie, but completely forgot until Tom mentioned it in his top ten. Thanks for the reminder, Tom. I loved it. See, Arthur? Tom told me not to see it. He goes, You'll, it's great, but not for you, Kelly. Yeah, it may not be for you, Kelly. Uh, we now have a later second entry by Dave Perkins. 
Oh, he's back. Yeah, Dave is back. I'm not sure if these car these count as title cards, so if not, feel free to override me. I love the way that the cast is introduced in Snatch, with freeze-framed animations and character names and title cards. Love the song, the pace, and even the little stars on each card, Dave. I wanted to pick uh, Rock and Rolla, but I couldn't remember if it actually did that, and I couldn't find on YouTube. Uh, but I know that's like a Guy Ritchie thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, it, what it reminds me of is um, Straight Outta Compton in the way right. they let us know who each of the three dudes is. But yeah. with way more uh, panache when Guy yeah. Ritchie does it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and finally, we have Chris Markinson. Uh Hey, guys. I've stayed away from The Shining, since I'm guessing this will already have been chosen. Wait, what are the title cards in The Shining that we didn't choose? I don't know. Kelly Wand, you're our Shining authority. What are The Shining title cards? Uh, stuff like Monday. Oh, no, I think he's right. And it, it, there is some, like, crazy musical cue or something. I think you're right, Kelly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. A gong sounding. Oh, we let Chris down. He was sure we would have brought that up by now. Sorry, All right. Chris. All right, good well... job. All right, so the way Chris does this, it looks like he gives the title card, and then he will reveal the movie as we go on. Mm. So, Chris, for number three, part one, M. Gustave. A red panel with uppercase white and pink letters. I'm probably picking some low-hanging fruit by choosing the Grand Budapest Hotel, but mm. Rafe Fiennes gives such an incredible performance that it seems only proper to choose the title card with his character's name on it. Well, as Kelly Wan so keenly knows, Wes Anderson does title cards like no one else. Yeah, he really is good at that. Um, number two. Well, by your number one pick, you picked Royal Tenenbaums instead of whatever else it was you'd wanted instead to pick. Rushmore, in. which I know you wanted to pick Rushmore. All right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Markinson's number two. Quote, six months earlier, unquote. <laughs> a black guessing, background. Whatever this is, I'm guessing Dingus hated it. Yeah, it's probably Skyline. No, actually, I love this. A, back, a black background once again, only this time the letters are all lowercase. I know that title cards that jump forward or backward in time are problematic at best, but I think in Secretary that the movie earns the right mm. to use it. Yes. The grace, fluidity, and confidence that Maggie Gyllenhaal shows before the title card pops up and, pro- and pops up before the title card pro- pops up, sorry, provides such a great contrast to who she is now and who she was then. That's a good point. Were there title cards in Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> yeah, no. They, all. There were actually 49 of them. Yeah. What if Star Wars opened with Death Star blowing up and then it goes six months earlier? Yeah, I just want to point out, Kelly was the one who brought up Star Wars. You guys are always like, Tom's always talking about Star Wars. That was Kelly Wand. Yeah, but you plan it. Fifty Shades of Grey is clearly a reference to Darth Vader. Please. Darth I wish Vader. Tom would stop talking about Fifty Shades of Grey so I can get to my Star Wars. Why did he keep bringing that up, Kelly? Darth someone, Vader is all and nothing but black. Don't give me any of this gray, please. No, he saved his son by throwing a guy over an He's old man. He's got one and... little tiny red light on his little chest panel, but otherwise, totally black. Gray is the new Vader. No, no. All right. Darth Grayer. Seriously. Thanks, Kelly. High five. Chris Markinson's number one. Australia, ten years after the eclipse. Nice, nice. I knew that one. Do you, Kelly Wan, do you know that one? What? Do you know that one, that title card? Which one? Well, I should have said Australia, ten years after the collapse, but instead I said ten oh, years after the collapse. Oh, yeah, period. Collapse. Right? Nope. 
Please, you think Fury Road takes place 10 years after a, an apocalypse? Really? <laughs> That's impressive. It only took 10 years for a Morton Joe to, like, grow all those crops and imprison all those women. In 10 years, he did all that. Right, Kelly Wand? Yeah, that would only take 10 years if you really tried. Uh, it was certainly my Australia. pick. Australia. It, it was my pick for a uh, number one movie that year. Yeah. Which movie? Well, you're about to find out. Chris, what, Dingus, what does Chris have to say about that? Oh, yeah. All uppercase letters, white on a black background, in the rover. That's all that is needed to give you a starting point for the movie. Tyler Collard doesn't go into specifics on the collapse that hit Australia. Um, I think it just hit Australia. No, and no, what are you talking about? This is global, right? Or yeah, it's global. Yeah. A collapse of Australia? But, but the, 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 the title card is pointing out that it's we're in Australia, but we're assuming. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And it, it isn't necessary. That collapse gets referenced in what I think is the best and most powerful line in the entire movie when Grandma says, you must really love that car, darling. What a thing to get worked up about in this day and age. Nice. I thought nice. Nice. I just stand up and do that. I appreciate it. Back down. Sorry. Uh, I thought it was a powerful line when I first heard it, and it's even more power, more so when you watch the movie a second time and realize what Guy Pierce's motivation is. Thanks, guys, Chris. It's a good one, Chris. And that's all the listener submissions Mm -hmm. we have. I have but one runner-up, and that would be just a sort of a retread as far as Pulp Fiction, and I love the Vince Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Because uh, I love that it takes place right after Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. Do you guys have any runners up? I went back. I was sure that Casablanca opened with these cool title cards that explained, like the setting is World War Two. Casablanca's where people. Casablanca's where people are going to wait to get to America. I was sure there were title cards, so I looked it up on YouTube. Uh, no, it was a voiceover and stock footage and a map with line with that like line drawn like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Still cool, but in my memory they were title cards, so uh, I don't have runners right. up. Sorry, Kelly Wand runners up. I only have uh, at the beginning of Fargo. This is actually my number one. I was kidding before. Nope, but I have you work. down. Let me check the list. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums, Kelly Wand. Fargo yeah, actually, the house. Fargo uh, is not as good as Royal Tenenbaums, uh, Serious Man, or Escape from New York, according to you. Right. So what is the Fargo title card? Because that is oh, the based on a true story. Thing. Based on a true story, yeah. Yeah, based on a true story, no. Then it goes, the names have been changed to for the out of respect for the dead, <laughs> which is awesome. That's a good one. I don't know why you didn't pick that in your top three. Yeah. Why is I did. What's the matter with you? That was that wasn't me. It was it was uh, a dark force had possessed the microphone. A gray force. So Speaking gray force. of dark forces, Kelly Wan, what is next week's three by three? Next week's exciting thing will be the three best examples of coitus interruptus in a movie. So coitus interrupti. What is colitis? I think we've we we had best postcoital lines, but you're looking for coitus interruptus. All right. Yeah, because of a movie you recommended to me. You know what? I kind of like that. Dingus, yeah, I do you too. Really, yeah, okay. I thought Dingus. I, I like it. I think that Tom and I will have the, one of the same ones, but I'd like it. Wait, oh, what do you. Oh, be, I have no idea what you're referring to, Dingus. I can only think of one, and it's a movie you haven't seen. Um, I, Kelly, one, for a minute, I thought Dingus really didn't know what coitus interruptus meant, and we were going to have to explain it to him. He, did you hear what he said? He went, colitis? <laughs> yeah, because the, the famous, like, the girl with colitis goes by, and it sounded like that's what you were saying. When you get a condom stuck on your leg, it's, it's funny. <laughs> it 
Uh, all right, so, uh, Kelly Wand, what if the listeners have some ideas about cool scenes of coitus interruptus in movies? If they have any cool itis interruptus scenes for movies they wish to share with the uh, with the earth uh, over the internets, then they can send them to 3x3 at quarter to 3, Q-A-R-T-E-R-T-O-T-H-R-E-E.com, and we will read them on the air. Yes, we will. And say stupid shit and make you wish you hadn't done it. So join us for that next week. We will also uh, be seeing The Martian. So uh, see that and join us for our Martian podcast, followed by our uh, favorite instances of coitus interruptus. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined this week by Christian Molanski. It's Christian Moroski. And we also had Kelly Wand. Because you're a fag, all right? South of the border, down Mexico way, that's where I fell in love when the stars above came out to play. La, la, la. Hey, Dingus, let's start a task force and uh, it will eradicate smoking in movies so Tom will be able to see them with himself. Getting a boner. Boy, when Dingus gets some, we all get some, don't we, Tom? If you think about it, crunch numbers. Did he, did he?